Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Alright, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Five more weeks till Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Fuck. Five more weeks till Halloween, <laughs> Silver Shamrock. It's going to be stuck in You know what's, what's creepy about it is not the song itself. It's uh, the, the voice that comes after the song. You know, the guy that's like, come, come to the TV at 9 o'clock. For the big giveaway. <laughs> yes. Uh, is that your carpenter? I don't. I think the voice is someone who was involved with the production. I, it, it actually might be uh, the director, um, Tommy Lee Wallace, if I'm not mistaken. As I've done with the other the, budget. the other entries we've done here, I read a, a chapter from the book Taking Shape, and also just did my traditional research on it. And I feel like I remember that being the case. But yeah, the the big giveaway. It was definitely creepy, and of course, anything set to the tune of London Bridge is gonna. Be, it's like an earwig just gonna be stuck in your brain. Um, first bit of trivia they just selected to use that melody because I did not know this it is public domain unlike you know Happy Birthday is one of those songs that's always confused as being public domain and it's actually not so whoever owns the rights to that my god <laughs> I thought it finally was public domain that maybe might be not. it maybe I'm it's just wishful thinking that might be it there might have been a story that like up until X it wasn't public domain but yeah, this, the state of Mr. Birthday just finally <laughs> they they acquiesced. Uh, but in 1982, at least, London Bridge is falling down was a public domain. Uh, so if you couldn't tell by the catchy little jingle, we are here today to discuss Halloween three season of the witch uh, here as part of our six part Haddonfield night series. We had our uh, numerical installments, our, uh, you know, our contrarians, canonical uh entries with Halloween, the Rob Zombie remake from 2007, and of course the 1978 original. Uh, so our bonus episode for the month of September as we trek along here is, you know, you want to talk about Canonical, the one that is most distant from all of the others in the entire franchise, that being Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, the 1982, I, I want to say misunderstood, underappreciated, uh, under- Controversial. Underdignified. I don't know. I don't know about that, man. Because by now, uh, I, my eyes have been opened over the last couple of days. Because I was trying to be a little snarky on Twitter and just you know, tweet about it, expecting that I was just going to get a lot of agreement about how much it sucks or how much uh, it's just not worthy of being part of uh, the Halloween franchise. And suddenly, from everywhere, from every side, every angle, just passionate uh, defenders of Halloween three season of the witch. Uh, not just people saying, "Oh, it's all right." People that love it. Oh yeah, I did not realize that the 
I, I guess there's the big crossover between uh, people on my Twitter feed and people that love this movie. It's just almost completely an a complete overlap. So um, I don't know. Definitely not what I uh, expected, and uh, I don't know that it colored my experience of watching it. It's the second time watching it, but it definitely. Uh, as I was watching it tonight, I kept trying to figure out like, okay, why do people like it? <laughs> it is, uh... which is not. You know how you go in the first time. Yeah, that's that's definitely not a way to approach a movie, uh, or at least uh, <laughs> I guess that's an interesting way to approach it. Why do people like this? <laughs> yeah, I remember this was kind of one of the original, at least uh, for me, that I stumbled into one of the original like hipster horror movies of you know, oh, what is it? The Revolver, the Beatles fans, the Beatles contrarians that say that's their best album. And, you know, um, it's one of the the B-sides. That's the phrase I was looking for in terms of not to say that Revolver is a B-side, but it's a it's a B-side track that a lot of horror fans in the more hipster realm definitely uh, the first time I saw it versus all of the praise it got from some people that my sentiment was kind of similar to yours. But. Not to get too far into the second half of this podcast already, but I, having seen it the amount of times I have, I definitely have a refined appreciation for it, for Tom Atkins, and for the fine people of this city in California that live <laughs> basically like steampunk meets Amish type village that they have going on there. And I, I definitely appreciate With a twinge it. of the Irish? Yes. Santa, Santa Mira, California. There it is. I... I guess the Irish were just trying to get to the Midwest and all got stuck in California. I don't I don't really know what happened, but they they certainly made the most of it. So this is the Contrarians. If this is your first time listening to us, it's greatly appreciated and welcome. Uh, again, with the notable reputation and very um, verbose nature of its fan base. I wouldn't be surprised if we do get a few first-time listeners here for Season of the Witch. Um, If you're a returning listener, uh, thank you very much. We always appreciate your support. Allow us a moment here to explain our gimmick to our new listeners. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. As we say, we take a movie from Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, uh, sometimes known as Certified Fresh, and make a case for maybe why it shouldn't be, maybe why the critics got it wrong. Conversely, we'll find a movie that is uh, rotten. Uh, Typically, we aim for about 30% below and make a case for its positive merit. Uh, Now, this is going to be a little different. Typically, on our uh, chronological episodes, we go back and forth between fresh and rotten. This one's a little bit different in that it falls into kind of what we would define as a gray area. Sometimes uh, every 10 episodes on The Contrarians, we do a gray area podcast, which typically falls between about 40 and 60%, uh, being that Halloween season of The Witch is at 42%. doesn't fit entirely into our parameters, but again, we wanted to make sure this was included in our Haddonfield Night series, and this is a bonus episode, so we're bending the rules just a little bit. But with that being said... Also, uh, I would say it may be 42% of tomato meter, but this is one of those uh, kind of unusual instances where the audience score is so much lower did you see the audience score no well 27 percent. yeah but that that makes sense like uh, i can't imagine you know this was made fucking five years before i was born but going to the theater and expecting to see michael myers you know chop some people up and then this dude with a greasy mustache shows up and is just <laughs> 
womanizing like his name's Dean Martin and he's on a variety hour television show. I could see where the initial that's the people from 1982 that saw this opening weekend were so mad that at the advent of the Internet, they got on to make sure they bitched about it. (laughs) The very first uh, Run Tomatoes users like, oh, I can score this shit. (laughs) I took a girl on a date to this. In 1982, and I didn't get shit in return. And Michael didn't kill anybody. <laughs> and, and who's this Irish fucker? <laughs> so uh, it does still fall in the rotten category on Rotten Tomatoes. So we will be in this first portion of the podcast speaking to the positive merit of Season of the Witch and the fine people at Silver Shamrocks. Uh, we should be careful, Alex, because I'm sure you're aware there's actually a, a Nicolas Cage movie called Season of the Witch. I just looked it up to make sure from 2011. Um, so, well, if you arrived at this episode via that, like looking for the Nicolas Cage movie, I don't know what to tell you. We'll be By sure now, we've that... given you plenty of information to make sure that you know yeah. this is not it. And the title will include Halloween 3 colon Season of the Witch. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, there is several movies that have had that same title, and I did know Nicolas Cage was one of them. Season of the Witch was the original working title for Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets in 1973. What? <laughs> Makes no sense, right? Now you're making stuff up. And in 1972, there was a George A. Romero film named Season of the Witch. And then, as Julio mentioned, of course, Nicolas Cage in one of his 37 movies of 2011, made a film <laughs> entitled Season of the Witch. But Julio, obviously uh, our thoughts and opinions are going to kind of differ, uh, I believe, if uh, our text exchanges and just uh, previous banter about this as any indication. So uh, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie... Wait for the second half of the show called Real Talk, which is exactly that, Real Talk. Uh Alex will tell us how much he likes Season of the Witch, because that much I've gathered uh, in our years of friendship, and especially over the past few weeks, as he was excitedly recounting the number of movies and the movies themselves that we were going to cover on uh, Haddonfield Nights. Uh, As for me, like I said, I watched Season of the Witch once before. It was last year, actually, around Halloween season. First time ever. Uh... I was uh, to say I was lukewarm on it would be uh, just actually overstating it. But uh, like I said, I tried to watch it with new eyes tonight, and also I was uh, I knew what to expect, which I think it's it's a big deal. Like you were just talking about how uh, people going to watch Halloween three as Halloween three uh, back in eighty two. They they kind of had to deal with the shock of it not being a Michael Myers movie. I didn't have to deal with that uh, tonight, so. Uh, yeah, how do I really feel about Halloween 3 Seasons of the Witch? Stick around. Uh, we'll find out on Real Talk. Now we are moving to 1982 and to a brand new world, a world where John Carpenter said Michael Myers was dead and that Halloween <laughs> could be anything. It could, it itself would be a cursed day, but what happened on that day could range from uh, you know, this crazy Irish cult uh, trying to kill millions of children across the world to I don't know what else because it never went anywhere after here. <laughs> oh, the places it could have gone. So the Dr. Zeus uh, book. Uh, yeah, it's about the Halloween franchise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It went from this to OK, Michael's back. But now he has a, a niece and now she's going to be evil. Um, so it was a new time, a new 
it was supposed to be the launch of a new era in the Halloween franchise, which by this point, with the um, impact on pop culture and also monetarily that one and two had made, it you know, film studio was going to make sure that this was a franchise by Halloween two being released under Universal, obviously a huge step up uh, in production value, and this as well being released by Universal, uh, it was a, a brand new day. Um, was met similar to Julio used the word lukewarm earlier. That's similar to how audiences met this, but, uh, being that it's 42%, you know, we'll get into its defenders. Julio, what were the, uh, the majority of critics saying at this point in time? We jest and all that, but there are actually not that many reviews overall for season of the witch and run tomatoes mm-hmm. compared to, you know, I, I was pulling quotes for the original Halloween last week. And that was, of course, I had a lot more to go through here. Uh, Yes, it's 42%, but it's a percentage out of a smaller pool of reviews. Uh, I pulled three. Started with Chris Stuckman from ChrisStuckman.com, who says, Absolutely atrocious. I admire the fact that they did try to propel the story in a different direction, but the story they chose was insanely boring. Uh, Sean Munro from Flickering Myth says, Halloween 3 cynically critiques consumerism, all while tethering itself to a brand name in the craven pursuit of more money. I thought that was a pretty good point. <laughs> Even though I don't know that the movie is actually criticizing consumerism. I, I, I think the movie is about Tom Atkins' sex life. And, and we'll get into that. Safe bet. And finally, Felix Vasquez Jr. from Cinema Crazed says, It's no wonder they gave up after this and brought back Michael Myers. Uh, Boo. give up is kind of a strong way of phrasing that. Giving Felix up and, likes the status quo. Giving up and being told to do something are two different things. So it is October 23rd. It is indeed eight more days till Halloween in Northern California. We are greeted by a crazy man. Is it? It's is it raining at this point? I can't remember if it's raining when the movie starts. I know it starts to rain. I want to say no, but uh, I could be wrong. There's, uh, my, my first note is just Mustafa is back. Oh, yeah. Is... Mustafa never left us. He's he's always yeah. going to have his, his name there front and center. Uh, but we do get the really cool, I, I get jumped ahead there. We get the awesome fucking light bright, like the, the extreme close up that you don't know what it is until the end when it finally pans out of this, I guess, groundbreaking computer screen at the time making a, a jack-o'-lantern <laughs> face as we get the opening credits. And the music uh definitely you know kind of i don't want to say uh james cameron you know used a pseudonym here but this definitely reeked of terminator score there was something going on in the early 80s uh when it came to just composers and i guess overall scores and uh Sometimes it worked like gangbusters uh, where the audience recognized it as well as the people behind the camera. And sometimes like with Season of the Witch, it it was just kind of a waste of good stuff because people didn't uh, appreciate it. Uh, It's a shame. All these years later, though, finally getting recognition. (laughs) But what it does is it establishes this ain't your daddy's Halloween. We're not here for the the piano and the boo-doo-doo-doo. It's just very long, synthesized, you know, NES-type music that carries us through the opening stanza here, the opening credits. Um, Do you think at this point people realized this early in the movie, (laughs) they realized that it was not a Michael Myers movie? When do you think? Is it like when they see him on TV, when they just go, oh, he's not going to come? I guess, you know, it's one of those things we we talk about now how little audiences educate themselves on movies before they go to see him. Uh, 
most notably Julio and I have always talked about when the artist was big, uh, the amount of refunds uh, as managers at Cinemark we had to give out for people that didn't know it was a silent film. And so, and that's, you have literally at your fingertips access to this information. So 1982, the most that could have come of this is someone saw the poster and was like, well, does Michael have a new mask or what's going on here? (laughs) And then, you know, I assume you're exactly right. That scene where, raging alcoholic tom adkins is in the bar and uh he first is watching some cartoon like he's seeing his life flash before his eyes and then they flip it (laughs) over and it's a halloween and the the horror classic so i assume at that point someone in the theater just threw their popcorn and said fuck this (laughs) i think it was at that point also in filming the movie that tom adkins found out that there wasn't a michael myers character in the movie (laughs) he was so excited he couldn't wait to meet the shape (laughs) And then he was going to grab his nope. ass, too. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, tale as old as time. We start this movie with a runaway crazy man. We don't know why he's running. He's being stalked, uh, chased even uh, by a car of nicely dressed men. I, again, if you're watching this now, not knowing what you're watching, you may think these are Mormons going door to door trying to get him. <laughs> and they he's running. He's clutching a pumpkin mask in his hand at this point, you know, all we've seen as far as iconography goes of Halloween is the um, the jack-o'-lantern because we got the opening uh, digital presentation of a jack-o'-lantern and then he's also running with this mask. He evades uh, these men chasing him, one of which he crushes between two cars. He gets to a gas station. This is where it's raining, I know, because it's thundering and the power goes out. And the guy who's wow. running the gas station's like, well, that's not normal. So he comes in and he says, they're coming, they're coming and faints. And God bless this gas station attendee. He actually takes him to the hospital. He goes the extra mile. But then he's one of those guys that goes the extra mile and then proceeds to tell you uh, how how rough it was traveling that extra mile. Because he'll he'll tell anybody that listens uh, that, oh, well, you know, I I, I just figure I should do it because my papa told me (laughs) if if you ever see somebody in need, you need to help him out. You never know when it's going to be your turn. (laughs) Tom, we we get it. Uh, Okay, okay, shut up. And just tell <laughs> Do you think the people uh, back in 82, they thought that this was the same hospital that uh, Halloween 2 takes place in? <laughs> uh, it, you know, that's actually a good point. I mean, it, it could have been. It could have been. Expectations were still high at this point. They thought he was just going to come bursting through the door at any moment. Uh, but this one was a bit more clean. It was also a bit more well lit. The uh, candy stripers weren't wearing mini skirts, So it was... <laughs> It looked like a legitimate operation. And, uh, of course, this is the segue. This is introduction to our main character of the film, Dr. Daniel Chalice, played by sexual tyrannosaur Tom Atkins. Uh, he comes in and is just he's already kind of sweaty and a, a bit out of place. Um, the previous scene, basically the sequitur between the two is he uh, we meet his children who he bought some Halloween masks for and also see the tumultuous relationship between him and his ex-wife. So she hates him. Yeah. Uh, she she outs him as a drunk, like in the first 30 seconds of their conversation. <laughs> uh, did you catch who played his, his ex-wife? No, no. Is that somebody we know? It's uh, Nancy uh, Keys. Keys, again, have a hard time pronouncing it. Annie Brackett from the original Halloween. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, did not recognize her. She was a lot less happy and bubbly. Yeah, uh, and they this, this time around used a whole can of spray on her hair just to make it look gray and a bit older. So 
he has established himself as not knowing what his kids really want because he gets them these shitty Halloween masks and their mom has already bought them the silver shamrock, the the which is apparently the big get for the Halloween season this year. Come in three masks. There's the uh, the jack-o'-lantern, the witch, and then it's the skull of the witch. I was going to say, yeah, it's the skull is the one that eventually he wears too. Um, so Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins is basically the new Loomis, right? He's a doctor, like like Loomis was, and he is our, our male protagonist. Uh, now the the big upgrade compared to uh, to the original Halloween is that Tom Atkins has more going for him than just an obsession with Michael Myers. In this case, Tom Atkins, like you said, he has kids, he has uh, an ex wife that hates him. We actually see him practice as a doctor. Uh, it's not just lip service. He he actually we see him at the hospital. We see him doing doctor things, uh, and he also has. A libido to rival any male protagonist in any movie that you can name, which I think makes this fascinating. Uh, like I said a little bit ago, to me, Halloween three is about many things, but the main thing it is about is about Tom Atkins letting his penis lead the way and getting in trouble for it, and I love it. That's that's probably my favorite thing about this movie. What you were saying is, you know, when he has this, he has this. I was waiting for you to say he's got a flask in every compartment and a honey in every town because that's how this man <laughs> operates. Um, yeah, just in the immortal words of uh, Dave Chappelle on The Chappelle Show, a sexual appetite that would make Mike Douglas seem gay. One of the first scenes were introduced to him and he uh, he gooses one of the nurses there. Uh, I can't remember if he just like slaps her ass or pinches it, but it's. You know, he's just incredibly flirtatious to the point of just laying it on thick. To be fair, none of the characters in this seem particularly bothered by it. It at, at any point, were you uncomfortable with his flirtation? I mean, when we get to Ellie, that's a bit of a different situation. But just his flirtation here with the nurses, did were you given any uneasy vibes by this? No, no, no. It was mutual. That's why it's fun. If it was... Uh... I mean, not to say that this wouldn't be a good movie if it turned out that he was a creep. It would just be a different movie, right? It would make me uneasy. But no, in this case, it was just fun. It was, uh, and I completely understand because uh, one of the big achievements of this movie is also one of its biggest drawbacks, as you mentioned back in the day, because I can only imagine you come out of Halloween 1 and 2, and it's not just that you don't have the characters, right? You don't have Michael Myers, you don't have uh, Laurie, you don't have Loomis. It's just that the tone is so different. It doesn't make it a bad movie. It's just a much lighter movie, a, a more playful movie. And that's what I saw all throughout here. It was just adults having fun, right? It's not a movie unlike uh, the original Halloween. This movie doesn't demonize sex. You know, it's not that they're having sex and then something bad happens to them. Uh, it's, I mean, I think it criticizes the idea of only having sex on your mind. But as far as uh, Tom Atkins's appetite, it seems up to a point healthy and everybody that he's involved with seems to like him a lot. You know, the nurse, the, I don't know if it's, I guess it's somebody in the police department that, that you know, he talks to later. Uh, uh, coroner's you know, office. Ellie. Every, the, only, the only woman, the only character actually that doesn't seem to like him is uh, his ex-wife, which I guess, yeah, it, it, he seems like one of those guys is, uh, that would be a lot more fun to uh, be friends with than uh, rather than be married. Yeah, to. if this is his but, be, uh, if this was his behavior when they were married, I can't imagine that being too fun for the former Annie Brackett. Right, especially once they had kids and uh, 
she just had to stay home and take care of him while he went out uh, on another bender. Yeah. <laughs> Come back with hickeys. She's always left to take care of them, and he's always calling with multiple times in the movie, calling with some new excuse, and we just hear her yelling at him on the other line. Uh, and he's always, you know, looking at whoever's close to him like, women, am I right? <laughs> yes. And everybody gives him the look back like, oh, yep, you're right, you're right. Uh, but definitely, he's a likable guy. Yeah, definitely the kind of guy that would buy you a beer at a bar if you were watching the Cowboys game with him. But he finds himself just in a situation that he didn't intend to be in, and that is uh, the uh, gentleman who was brought in, the mysterious gas station man, is uh, in the hospital. They believe he's being recovered, and he is sound asleep one night, and we get, oh, again, one of these men in a suit, clean-shaven, high-and-tight haircut, uh, not really high and tight, but more of just of the style at the time comes in. And then like one of the more brutal kills we have seen up until this point in Haddonfield Nights, yep. he sticks his fingers in this dude's eyes and then pulls his skull apart. It's terrifying. Yeah, I, I didn't know what I was seeing. I thought that he had pulled his nose off, uh, which I guess kind of does. Uh, but then I, I rewinded it just to see exactly what happened. And uh, and then thankfully they spell it out for you. I think that uh, a couple scenes later they actually say that that's what happened, that it just destroyed his skull. Brutal. Awesome. Also, very confusing, I imagine. Again, for anybody that, that was still expecting the, the Halloween of the past two movies, uh, just the fact that here, so far, you're, you're bad guys are nothing like Michael Myers. They're just uh, expressionless businessmen, which can be extremely creepy given the, the right circumstances. Uh, but when you're just, I guess, used to just a hulking, uh, silent man, uh, then they, I can see how they might not measure up. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is, in order to enjoy Season of the Witch, you really have to let go of your preconceptions of what a Halloween movie should be. Yes. And without really knowing what had happened... Uh, Dr. Chalice, Mr. Adkins here, sees this gentleman roaming the halls and is like, well, what the hell is going on here? So chases him to the uh, outside and just watches this dude walk to his car and then, uh, is it emulates? Is that the, am I thinking of the right term here? What the, emulates, Viet- uh, em- yeah. I think. Yeah, self-immolation. Dude lights yeah. himself on fire like the original Rage Against the Machine album cover. Uh, like a monk of years past, lights himself on fire, covers himself in gasoline, and this car blows up completely. Obviously, a weird happening to kick us off here with Season of the Witch. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, not the Nicolas Cage movie, nor the uh, working <laughs> title for Mean Streets. Uh, this is, by the way, where the title sequence ends. <laughs> After the car explodes, <laughs> that's where you get Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. The entire first reel was the opening credits, a la the 2010A team. A few days later, we're introduced to our uh, female counterpart, our co-star, and Stacy Nelkin, uh, who plays Ellie Gimbridge, whose father... Uh, did he have a, a full name in this movie? Uh, Papa. Papa. <laughs> Harry Gimbridge, all right. Played by Al Berry. So... Ellie shows up and is there, you know, her dad got killed. Uh, I don't like that it's a few days later because he's just, they've left his body dead there. (laughs) And God knows the decomposition that's already begun. But they were waiting for her, Alex. To confirm, yeah. And I love the police chief who looks slightly like the man who played Commissioner Gordon in Tim Burton's Batman. Uh, He stops him and or stops her excuse me it's like ma'am i don't know if you want to do that and she's like let's just get it over with like it's fucking covid or something and then <laughs> lifts the blanket yep that's my dad with a crushed skull all right again very different from uh from Lori. um this is uh 
I again, I would argue a much more complex character, uh, and it's a shame that basically the audiences would turn on her just because she's not, she's not Laurie, she's not uh, innocent, she's not, uh, she's not a goody two shoes, right? She, yes, she's shocked by the death of her father, but that doesn't really uh, just numb her. Instead, it turns her into a detective it just spurs her into action and that was something else i appreciate about this movie usually the way you see grief depicted in movies is as this uh, unstoppable force that will just bring somebody down and when somebody's overcome with grief then that's kind of then they're not no longer active participants in the movie uh here's the complete opposite Uh, the murder of her father just kind of brings ellie alive and suddenly she's just looking into it and then of course that leads her to a to have a very uh, uh, torrid, passionate relationship with Tom Atkins. That's just, it, it's the opposite of what you would expect from this from this setup, right? You don't expect somebody whose father was just horribly murdered to react that way. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It just means that you don't see it in the movies, usually. Like you said, you have to give them credit for, if nothing else in, in this movie, leaning all the way into what they're doing. And what they're doing is nothing like they've done the previous two which I mm-hmm. you have to give him credit for. And that comes down to Ellie and then, of course, the Ellie and Dr. Chalice relationship. Essentially, he just tells her, he's like, you know, uh, I know something wasn't right. She finds him at a bar, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> yep. we, we mentioned, the, that's where he's watching Halloween's on the TV. But he's at a bar and it's like, it looks like it's seven in the morning because all the chairs are still <laughs> on the tables and no one's in there except for him. Yeah, this is five more days till Halloween. You can keep tabs on what day it is by the, the jingle. But she comes in and she's just basically like, did my dad tell you anything? And he says, yeah, tell Ellie I love her. And then he rips a shot of Jack Daniels or whatever he was drinking. (laughs) She's just like, wow, you're a bad liar. Essentially, they concur with one another that something, you know, fishy is going on. Nefarious, even. They want to get to the bottom of it. So they're going to investigate where uh, Mr. Gimbridge had been the past few days, what was going on. All the while, this is, uh, we mentioned uh, the representative at the coroner's office, Terry who he is just, God, the sexual tension. We're talking Gosling, uh, McAdams level here of, you know, the pouring down rain. So do you think they've had sex or they've just been circling for years? Oh, no. What vibe did you get? I definitely got the vibe that they have had sex many times and they just kind of, they come back to one another every once in a while because they they make allusions to several dates they've been on and things of that nature. And I, I couldn't tell what he was referencing if he was talking to her about, her boyfriend or something. Cause he asked her like, do you still have that? And she cuts him off and she's like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and then she kisses him on the, che- the cheek and kind of just shoes him away. Uh, but the whole point being, she works at the coroner's office. Obviously they can't get that's that becomes legalities. They can't just give that information out willy nilly, but he's like, Hey, keep me in the loop of this dude who, you know, burned himself the other day. Cause I, I got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> he's Tom Atkins. Of course she, she's like, sure. Anything for you, sweetie. Uh, I I imagine that that she's not the only person in the in the police department or in the coroner's office that that he's had relations with. I just seeing him walk around sets in this movie, you kind of get the feeling that he's just he's he's had a taste of everything and anything that's that's being offered uh, <laughs> around this this town. And, and, you know, good for him. <laughs> it's the we, we're just missing the walk the line montage of like uh, Joaquin Johnny Cash just cheating on his wife over and over and over again. <laughs> but with the with the the him. silver shamrock uh, jingle playing in the yeah. background. Yes. 
That'd be fantastic. They track down um, where her dad had been. She kind of has notes of where he had been or what he was doing. And so she, uh, and the mask, that's what it is. She traces the mask with the silver shamrock emblem on it uh, back to the, the factory based out of Santa Mira, uh, California. I believe that's a fictional city, if I'm not mistaken. I would hope so. Otherwise, we're in trouble. <laughs> it's still operational to this day. Uh, yeah, it's a fictional city that's been used in several different things. I knew I'd heard of it before. Uh, it's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's where that's based. So that's kind of cool. People never learn. Yeah, it's <laughs> They a, keep trusting the anything that comes out of that city is bad news. A city that's been used for different horror and science fiction settings. Uh, so they go there, and it, as we mentioned, has just been overwrought with Irish people. And it's a town that's completely under surveillance. And... Um, they don't take too kindly to outsiders. Big time children of the corn vibes. When they come into town, everyone just stops what they're doing and stares at them. Tom Adkins is just kind of, he says something like, damn factory town or something to the effect. <laughs> but they go and they stay at the, I think it's the Dublin Inn. This, this town could not be trying any harder to be something it's not. It's a, it's a town in California, all right? You're not on yeah. the island anymore. Tom Adkins also couldn't be trying any harder to get laid. Uh <laughs> It's it's amazing. I was I was in awe of his game and his balls because, uh, I mean, forget about what I just said. As far as he knows, this is just a woman that just lost her father, right? Uh, but that doesn't stop him. I mean, he gives her enough space to grieve initially the first time they cross paths, but then once they go on this road trip together, uh, he's just you can tell he's 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 setting the 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 stage. I I love that. He has to call and cancel on his ex-wife again, telling her that uh, he can't go pick up the kids. Yeah. And uh, he makes up some bullshit story. And then after he hangs up, he grabs a six-pack of beer. Yes. And takes it to the car. He's got a six-pack of Miller High Life. And, you know, keeping it classy, the champagne of beers. And then once they get to the town, he very casually suggests, well, maybe we should get a room. uh, You know, so we can can have some privacy (laughs) while we discuss the, the case. While we get to the bottom of this, he actually does, you know, for being a doctor and a drunk on top of that, he actually does some good sleuthing because when the, uh, you know, Patches O'Houlihan is helping them get checked in and he's like, keep him busy. And he goes and does some investigating in the front and checks the um, the binder for past guests and all that. So he, he's doing a pretty decent job of that. But yeah, they settle in the room. He's like, well, maybe we should get two rooms. I didn't know it was going to be this small or something like that. And she's like, do you want another room? That's a stupid question, Miss Gimbridge. And then just goes up and lays it on her. I mean, they waste no time hopping into it. But this is what's awesome, Alex, that all this time we were thinking, I know I was thinking that Tom Atkins was was really working overtime to seduce this woman. But then when we get to this scene... That's when I realized, uh, no, she had been seducing him all along. Mm-hmm. She was ready. She is the one that brings it up. She She's the one that said, well, don't you want to sleep with me, basically. Forget about Michael Myers and Lori and Loomis. That, to me, was the biggest surprise of them all. And that, I guess that just shows how conservative my mind can be at times. Uh, the idea that this young woman that was uh, mourning the death of her father would actually still have... Much like Tom Atkins, a healthy sexual appetite. And she'd be like, listen, we're two adults. We are in a room here. The sexual tension has been building up the entire road trip. Uh, let's just take care of this. Thankfully, Atkins doesn't do what you would expect uh, uh, someone would do in, in, in a movie where 
you know, pretend that he's not interested or try to act bashful. No, as soon as she gives the okay, then he goes in and good. We don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, now that they're just having sex, they've moved past the the game part of it and now they can just have fun. It's like Will Ferrell says in um, Wedding Crashers, grief is nature's most powerful aphrodisiac. So that's clearly on display here. But yeah, they just kiss here. This is just the, the starting salvo. Outside their hotel room is just chaos as a family and a camper pull up. It's a salesman, a shop owner by the name of Buddy Cupfer, and he's got his wife, Betty, and his son, Little Buddy. And then also a very um, irritable uh, shop owner named Marge Gutman shows up as well. With She has a mask that has a, a default to it, or a, a fault to it, excuse me. Uh, a defect is the word I was looking for. And she's there to take it up with... Uh, this mysterious Mr. Cochran and his silver shamrock factory. It all leads to uh, Tom Atkins going back in the room and delivering the phenomenal line of it's a zoo. And just like <laughs> looking around the, the cityscape. Uh, he goes out that night cause you know, the bottles run dry. So fortunately in Santa Mira, there is a liquor store and he uh, is just wandering off the beaten path and stumbles across the, I feel like a, a trope we don't get enough in the horror sci-fi genre. That being the prophetic uh, drunken hobo and in which the character here asks, he says, I see that bottle's pretty heavy. Care if I have some? And from there just explains, you know, this whole town's bugged. It's all wired up and this Cochran's watching everybody. And then he just yells, he's listening to us right now. Fuck you, Cochran. And Tom Adkins is just kind of staring at him like this guy might be crazy, but he might be onto something. So I should probably pay attention. Uh, the good pre-COVID times where you could just share a bottle with a random stranger in the street. What a time to be alive. There is the announcement. I think it, it was the prelude to this scene um, where the radio and the basically the speakers in the city go off. Curfew, curfew. Did you catch that part? No, I, I, I missed it. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, there's like the... The emergency response system, the the big horns all over town that say curfew. Now time to turn in. It's six p.m. It, anyway, the point being that Jamie Lee Curtis did lend. She recorded that. That was her contribution to this movie. So now I have to go back and rewatch that. Just to, what a team player. I know, right? She she has been so much more grateful and uh, gracious to this franchise than she needed to be. <laughs> It's like Kevin Bacon has refused to do anything with Friday the 13th ever again since the first one. So just Jamie Lee Curtis keeps rescuing the Halloween franchise. I know. It's like, uh, you know, the loser brother that you have to lend money to every once in a while. And she she just hasn't forgot about that. And then fortunately resuscitated it back to life two years ago. <laughs> Dr. Chalice reaches back to his friend Teddy in the uh, morgue checking out the uh, potential autopsy results. And she just says they've been dissecting pieces from the car. Because at this point, you know, no one's seen a robot. So this just kind of buys us time. Not only us, but the, the people in the movie, as well as the audience here. It's just kind of like, oh, okay. Well, I guess we're going to have to wait a little bit longer for that discovery. As well as Dr. Atkins. Dr. Tom Atkins, uh, he needs the time so he can uh, get closer to Ellie. Uh, now that now that it's been established that they like each other and that they're cool with uh with being physical. Oh, and that comes into play because we see back in uh, the hotel room, Ellie comes out of the shower. It's steaming hot. I don't know why, but it reminded me of uh, Butch getting out of the shower in Pulp Fiction just because <laughs> the steam rising and everything. And she uh, wraps herself in the uh, 
the comforter of the bed in their hotel room to await for Tom Atkins to get back. And when he does, she disrobes. But this time she has like some negligee on. So it, it's uh, it is very much on at this point in time. And this it's not the most graphic sex scene we've ever covered here on the contrarians, but it was much more graphic than I remembered. So <laughs> definitely made it more memorable. There's uh there's a lot going on. Tom Atkins uh, goes for it in more ways than one. And, uh, and his co-star uh, seems okay with it. Uh, you know, I- I'll confess, Alex, I thought that this was the second time they were having sex. I, I didn't realize it was just a kiss earlier. I'm a little bummed. I really thought that they they couldn't wait uh, because you know earlier uh, you know they kiss and then you cut to I'm pretty sure you cut to Tom Atkins going to get alcohol so I thought that they'd spend the entire afternoon having sex <laughs> then he went out to get alcohol <laughs> then he came back and she had taken a shower and then they went at it again and this was confirmed because later on in the movie she keeps wanting to have sex and he's he looks tired he's like man don't you ever need some sleep. <laughs> Yeah, I guess you're right. They could have done it right then and there. That ooh, first time having sex after a long car ride? No, thank you. <laughs> that, and Tom Adkins, I, I mean, I don't know. That's the point. He's old and weathered, and she's young and you know, kind of eager. So maybe it did work out for him. God bless him. But yeah, they're having sex again for whatever time in the day, uh, for however many times in the day. And next door, the aforementioned shop owner, Marge, who was there to return a mask and kind of vent her grievances, notices that the uh, emblem on the back, the silver shamrock emblem, falls off. And she sees there's something like a a computer chip in it or something. So she takes a a pin out of her hair. I believe it's a bobby pin and just starts kind of picking at it, trying to see if she can get it out to examine it further. And that was a mistake. That was like... (laughs) That was trying to charge your car battery or get your, give yourself a jump when you don't know how to properly use the cables uh, because she picks at it too long and it shoots a fucking laser into her face. <laughs> this is scarier and more disturbing than anything in any of the Halloweens. <laughs> Not even Rob Zombies. I mean, that's just... This was... Uh, I think partly because I was not expecting it. And the movie... It's not like the movie has set you up for this. Yes, we had the, the horrible... Uh, skull crushing from earlier but it was nowhere near as graphic as this close-up of margie's face after a laser has gone through it and actually aren't there bugs coming out of it also one that later? yeah like a couple bugs come out well, that there's much more uh insect and uh reptile action later on but yeah a few bugs crawl out of her mouth here her face is like her eyes are bugged out and her mouth is basically just blown inside out it's and they linger on it too it is disturbing yeah, I think that if if some of those people that walked out of the movie had been a little more patient and had just stayed at least until this part, what maybe even if if they'd got into the sex scene, the, the the graphic sex scene between Tom Atkins and and uh, and Allie or Ellie, uh, you know, maybe that would have helped them stay. And then definitely they get to this, and this is okay. Now now it's a horror movie. This is what I wanted. Their horniness and their bloodlust would have both been satiated if they just could have stuck it out a little bit longer. Uh, <laughs> So as her face gets blown apart, Ellie, straddling Tom Adkins, says, uh, what was that? And sweaty Tom Adkins with his greasy mustache just says, who cares? And uh, we fade to black. And then later on in the night, there's a car pulling up. And this we get full on man ass. We get Tom Adkins man ass here. 
which I did not remember. And he, the way he jumps out of bed, I'm sure he wanted to do that take 40 times. He just seems so <laughs> eager to show that thing off. He does that thing that uh, it always bothers me when people put their, they're naked and then they put their pants and their underwear on at the same time. That's just, uh, and I don't know, to me, it's always a two-part process, you know? You Fair pull enough. the boxers on, then the the pants on. Because otherwise, it's just, I don't know, it, it, it looks clumsy. I mean, good for Atkins because he actually makes it look smooth. I don't know. To me, it looks artificial. I think that's that's what it is. Uh, but yeah, man ass. No, no, no body double. It's very much him. It's all one take. Oh, yeah. And, None uh, of that Robert Duvall bullshit. He's, <laughs> he's actually showing the goods. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at that point in the night, if it's me, it's just they're lucky if they get boxers. If someone's making that much noise, I'm just going to wander into frame with whatever I'm wearing, with what God gave me. And he just looks out the door. It's just a bunch of fucking orderlies. Not, it, no cop in sight. No you know, medical personnel. Just a bunch of dudes in white coats taking uh, Marge out of her room. They explain, hey, you know, we're going to take her to the factory. She's going to get the finest care that she can get. And this is when we actually meet. I would say we don't know he's the the villain at this point in time, but I he definitely is clearly the villain. That being Connell Cochran, played by uh, Dan O'Herlihy. I mean, just the way he pulls up in his limousine, uh, and you know everyone kind of bows down to him locally. I mean, this could be I, we I might have been onto something earlier without ever having flushed it out. This may be an allegory for Mormonism. <laughs> See this old white guy. Which is all fake smiles and uh, and just I guess uh, condescension with the idea yeah. of taking over the world. It's not just 2020 where we are uh, where we've learned to suddenly distrust uh, rich white people. No, even back in '82, you could tell that that was that was a bad uh, a bad sign. Yeah, not a safe bet. But he's obviously charming, cunning, friendly explains hey i've got a medical staff back here we're going to take her there she's going to get the best care that she can so the next day uh, dan and ellie continue on trying to get more information about why her dad was there he was apparently there to pick up a, an order of masks the gentleman who helped load him into his car says yeah i remember him he said he was heading north that's all i recall kind of running side by side with this uh, these two storylines kind of intersect is uh the previous character we met buddy the store owner, along with his wife and son, are there to get a tour of the factory. Mr. Cochran appears and is like, hey, it's, you know, nice to meet you. Now your time for your tour. And Buddy basically volunteers Ellie and Dr. Chalice like, hey, do you guys want to go on the tour, too? And, you know, they've got their detective hats on at this point. So, <laughs> I mean, fucking I could have really used Tom Adkins wearing a fedora and maybe smoking a pipe just with the way that this took a turn to the full detective realm. Uh, but yeah. that that could have diminished some of his raw sexual energy, to be fair. I mean, I would pay good money to watch uh, a full-on noir uh, <laughs> starring Tom Atkins. He, he, he's he got the goods, and he's not afraid of, of the sexual part of it. So he, I'm sure he could pull it off. But, of course, he was more interested in a different genre. Uh, what I liked about this sequence is just how you can tell that this this factory, this business... Uh, it's being ran properly. It, it, you know, Mr. Cochran runs it's a ship because uh, not only do they know exactly what to tell Ellie about her father, but also uh, the receptionist that's initially helping as they're walking away. She's like, well, would you like to place another order? She upsells. <laughs> like she, she was about to lose a customer. <laughs> and then she, she tries to upsell. And then Cochran, when she, when he invites her, invites them uh, over to the tour, he also says, well, you know what? We're replacing your order free of charge. It's all on us. And everybody applauds. And it's that, uh, 
So they may be evil. They may Power be trying to, to take over the world or destroy the world, but but they also know how to run a business. So they go on the tour of the facilities, and basically it, at this point just looks like a, a place that creates masks. We get to see Cochrane's uh, expansive collection of toys and previous uh, products that he had produced in the past. He talks about, you know, uh, that the masks go through final processing because little buddy runs up and grabs one that's you know not fully done. It's not been packaged and you know processed, vetted, and so Cochran's like, no, take this one. It's good. Uh, basically, final <laughs> processing at this point just means that we got uh, that official silver shamrock uh, insignia on it. And so of course, Buddy puts on this jack lantern mask and begins running around. Uh, buddy Cupfer, Big Buddy, he's wanting to know what this final processing is all about. He can't stand it. Uh, and we know that there's final processing because there's a big door with the words final processing above it. <laughs> and Tom Atkins is just like, you know, uh, me when there's a cooling pie on the stove and it's still scalding hot, but I just really want to dig into it. He's got that look on his face like, I know I shouldn't. <laughs> so he goes and he uh, joins Ellie and they're walking kind of in the courtyard of the factory. Ellie notices her dad's station wagon in a... Uh, basically just kind of an empty garage being guarded by several of these. At this point, we don't know that the robots, do we? Uh, no, we don't. But uh, Tom Atkins does notice that they all kind of look the same. And he says, uh, I think it's time to go because I those guys remind me of the guy that murdered your father. Okay. So, so, so he is a detective, all right. <laughs> but they know that definitely something, uh, trouble is afoot. And they have stumped, they've topped... They've popped the top off something big here. So back at the hotel, uh, eventually this pretty much just leads to Ellie getting kidnapped fairly quickly, correct? Tom Atkins makes a mistake of leaving her uh, to go. It, does he, he goes to make a phone call, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he says, you pack and I'm going to try to call the cops. I think that's that's what he tries to do. Which, uh, well, Tom Atkins, he, he was many things, but he was not a, a horror movie connoisseur because he should have known that he should have never left Ellie by herself. Uh, but he does that. And, and, and it's for naught because it's not like he can make a phone call after all. They've, they have those those phones, those, those phone lines on lockdown. And in his defense, unlike Jamie Lee Curtis in the first Halloween, it's not like he spent the entirety of this movie watching horror movies all day. So he, he doesn't know these tropes at this point. Right. He, he watched, we saw him watch cartoons and we saw him watch Five seconds of the original Halloween. That's all he's seen. He goes back to the factory with really no plan. He just knows that he's going to try to save Ellie. And in the process, obviously, he's not very good at this. And there's all these surveillance cameras everywhere. So uh, one of the henchmen attacks him. And he actually is able to defeat him just by punching him in the stomach repeatedly. And this this is where we learn that these guys are robots. Because he starts like pulling out his insides, which are all mechanism. It looks like a banana pudding. Yeah, and also I was about to say covering his hand. He's he's bleeding uh, in orange goo. So if he is a human, he is incredibly ill. <laughs> uh, how strong is Tom Atkins? I hadn't realized, but I guess this is part of his sex appeal. Because uh, these machines, they've been killing people, right? They're strong enough to to crush someone's skull and to just choke them. And uh, Tom Atkins puts up a fight, uh, and at first. It doesn't look like he's he's doing any damage, but then once he gets mad, he just literally punches through that guy's stomach, through that android stomach. So that's that's pretty impressive. Uh, I guess you kind of get the feeling that maybe Tom Atkins was not aware of his own strength because 
the shock of having done that and then the shock of the banana pudding on his on his hand just kind of ends the fight and and then he gets captured. Well, he kind of like just faints in place when he realizes what's going on. It also, you know, he could be really strong. It could also be just faulty uh, design on the robots that maybe their stomachs are just incredibly weak. But, you know, or it could just be a combination of the two. It's like the Death Star. That was their their one weak point. <laughs> just got to go right up the middle. That's that's what's going to take him down. So he's taken with your right hand. He's taken hostage, uh, and at this point, Cochrane, you know, drops the facade and just explains that, you know, it's a a very old school explanation for what he's doing. It's basically to return to the days of Samhain, of where you know a sacrifice is offered at around Halloween every year. Uh, because he's basically, you know, trying to restore a, a certain element of witchcraft where Halloween isn't about um, commercialism and, you know, fun and celebrating, but more about offering a sacrifice to the gods to ensure, you know, that your existence continues to be blessed. But also Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say where that becomes a little different is he has the Stonehenge implanted in his workshop and he's using it. He's like shaving off little pieces of it for these uh, silver shamrock emblems that are going to not necessarily turn these kids evil. My sister watched this movie with me having not seen it. She's like, oh, the masks are going to start, you know, they're going to implement mind control. I was like, uh, oh, no. just watch. <laughs> Uh, I love this because uh, we spent the last two episodes discussing, uh, arguing, debating the the merits and the drawbacks of explaining the motivation behind Michael Myers' actions, mm-hmm. right? Uh, was he fucked up from the beginning when he was a little kid? Was it bad parenting? Was it uh, that he has some sort of obsession with sex? It's so much speculation, so much energy spent trying to understand that to the point where it was detracting from the experience of watching the movie because we didn't know what we were watching here. Thank God, Mr. Cochran just lays it all out. He just tells us exactly what's going on. It doesn't matter if it's just so uh, on the surface, far-fetched. Because I, I don't care. At least I got the answers. You know, I, I if he tells me that what's happening is that this piece of Stonehenge is powering these evil masks and opening a portal to another dimension. Okay. That's cool. I mean, obviously that's true because that's what's happening. Like we're seeing it happen. Uh, I think that there's something to be said for, uh, doing away with the mystery at some point in the movie and just giving the audience the answers that they need so they can enjoy the rest, you know, of the third act or the next 30 Mm -hmm. minutes or whatever. Uh, that's something that didn't happen in the original Halloween, and that's not something. And that's something that the that Rob Zombie's Halloween kind of toyed with. But Season of the Witch just commits to giving you all the answers you need, uh, so you're not wondering what really what was really happening in that factory. Well, we know exactly what was happening. It may not be something that we believe might happen in the real world, but that doesn't matter because it's happening in the movie. Yeah, and also just the reaffirmation of like, uh, or the reaffirmation of crazy people like that are smart can almost pull off like genocide and you know if this guy had been dealing with anyone but tom adkins he probably would have gotten away and he still may have you know we'll get to the ambiguity of the finish yeah it's funny because i i that is true that is a perfectly valid reading i think it goes side by side with the fact that uh you can also read it as man tom adkins could have saved the world if he hadn't been so horny (laughs) because really he didn't need to stay in that town that long he could have just gathered that this is where this was a source of problems and he could have gone 
uh, out, got the police, the news, whatever, and and then get some backup, you know, before he went snooping around uh, uh, the factory and, and got Ellie kidnapped and everything else. Uh, but, yeah. you know, yeah. I think that uh, the moral of the story is that uh, both sides could have won if they had planned it all a little better. Yeah, the the situation here is that Cochrane just basically he went too far. If he had just been content staying, you know, running his own town where everyone worships the ground that he walks on, and <laughs> you know has uh, like the hobo that talked shit about him got his head ripped off by two of his henchmen, you know, <laughs> if he was comfortable just doing that, he he probably could have gotten a good run out of it. But here he wanted to go too far, and he um, basically you know sent people. Outside of the city limits, that created issues. So yeah, but also it, it made me think of that that joke, you know, where it's like step one this, step two question mark, step three profit. Like he had all three steps figured out because it was step one build the the masks are a portal to hell. Step two sell the masks, which he did. It was it was a booming business. Step three profit. He was making money. He was making <laughs> he, he bank. Just, yeah, he just didn't know when to stop. And let it be a lesson to anyone in uh, marketing or anyone who appreciates capitalism. If you've got a catchy jingle, you can sell just about anything. <laughs> as we've Make learned, sure it's in the public domain so you don't have to even pay for the rights to play it. As we've learned through COVID, there are enough fucking idiots in the, the world, specifically in America, that even if they know it's going to kill you, they'll still be like, well, you know, it's got a good song and I like that. <laughs> so he just... Un- Veils his plan to him. He's like, yep, and we're going to use these masks, and here is a demonstration. So he brings Buddy and his family back, puts them in front of the TV, and basically shows them an early preview of what the big giveaway is going to be. And it ends up just being this um, almost epileptic uh, flashing of the digital jack-o'-lantern while little Buddy puts his mask on, and then we see the uh, silver shamrock emblem in the back light up, so we know it's been activated. And from here... Nothing can really prepare, unless you know this is coming, nothing can prepare you for your first viewing of this. I remember watching this on TV when I was a little, not a little kid, probably like 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there. And I had no idea what was coming, much like my sister watching it tonight. And I hope like you did the first time you saw it. When this kid's head starts melting and then turns into crickets and snakes, that is some fucked up shit. And, you know, you can't really say that the movie didn't prepare you because, like I said, that close-up of uh, Marge uh, after the laser hits her face, that's pretty brutal. That's pretty graphic. Uh, but still, you think that they would draw the line at a kid. Right? I was going to say, up until this point in the franchise, the worst that has happened, and still the worst, is a dog getting killed. But they hadn't even broached the idea of a little kid being killed. And for it to happen like this, it's one of those things I just kind of watched like, uh, what? <laughs> and it's been such a fun movie up till now. Like so, so lighthearted compared to the previous entries. It's just mostly has, it's been Tom Atkins having a good time and playing detective. I, it's great because there's the intercut of what's happening in the room where the, where buddy and his family are and keeps intercutting with, uh, I guess the you know the headquarters, the, the secret lab, wherever uh, Cochrane is with with Tom Atkins and his henchmen, and they're just watching it on their monitors. And Tom Atkins's face as this is happening, it's just uh, the face that I would imagine most people in the audience had back then. Uh, you know, what the, when it gets really bad, I think it's when 
either the entire family is dead or it's clear that the kid's uh, head has has become this 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 mess of uh, snakes and crickets and whatever. Tom Atkins has this moment where he closes his eyes and he raises his fists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need to find. We need to get a screen cap of that to be the, uh, the the icon for the show. You know, it's one of the things where you don't even know how to read it, and it's so in line with how you feel about the entire sequence. You just don't. You can't believe that they cross that line. Yeah, and then so this is basically a demonstration of what is intended to happen with all of these, and that being that the children's head, the Stonehenge, will just suck the head dry. The Whatever their head then becomes is a uh, a mishmash of insects and snakes that'll call out, crawl out, excuse me, and kill who's ever nearby, venomous and dangerous creatures, and that's what happens here to um, Buddy and company, the Cupfer family. Doctor Chalice, Tom Atkins knows that this is bad. This is much worse than Michael Myers. And at this point, anyone still in the audience knows that this is much worse than Michael Myers stalking six people in one night. This is like millions of little children are about to die. So it's uh, it's not looking too good. Uh, hilariously, he gets chained up that night and is forced to watch Halloween. And he puts a... <laughs> he put They put like the skull mask on him. So when the big giveaway comes up, it's also going to kill Tom Adkins. But he's doing like uh, really intense eye acting here. So, like, Uh it's this terrifying skull mask on his face, but his eyes are just gigantic. They're, like, wide as saucers. It's, uh, it's one of the promotional stills they use on the back of the DVD, and it's, it's, I don't know why I find it so humorous, but, uh, I mean, naturally, he walks over, because he's fucking Tom Atkins, he kicks the tube of this TV out, takes one of the shards of glass, cuts himself free, like Indiana Jones, he frisbees the mask up onto the surveillance camera. And then it he falls escaped. perfectly too, because oh. when you look at it from the other side, from the monitor that's supposed to be, you know, checking on that camera, you can see the two eyes of the mask on the TV. Yeah, and so <laughs> that's right. And he throws it up there, and then he escapes. Uh, I think through like the ventilation shaft. Like, uh... oh yeah, dude, he gets the the Die Hard uh, Mission Impossible shot of uh, him crawling through the vents. With the camera in front of him, as he is uh, uh, just, you know, I guess making his way out. What is it that Bruce Willis says in Die Hard? He's like, come to L.A., it'll be fun, they said. I, I, I needed uh, Tom Atkins to, to be quippy, but I guess, you know, he just saw a child uh, have his head disintegrated. So I, I can understand that he was not in the mood to be funny. It's been a long day. So he rescues Ellie, or so we think, and they... <laughs> planning their escape he grabs a big box of just the unused chips thus far basically the masks are still in production the you know with the stonehenge chips in them he takes it up to the rafters of the uh, factory and basically dumps them onto their big computer production center so they're bouncing around all these electronics and sparks start going off so it just sets off this you know cataclysmic uh wave of energy that just wipes out everybody wait i thought Maybe I misread it. I even though, even with all the explanations, I, I could have missed it. But so I thought that what he did first was play the commercial, and then he dumped those things so that it it would activate them. That's right. That's right. Uh, so, th- but but then I was wondering. I was like, man, how does he know uh, how to how to get the commercial started? Because it's not like there were instructions or anything. He just started flipping switches. Uh, but then my answer was, well, he's Tom Atkins. Yeah, I thought he just basically. <laughs> He did that to distract them. I thought he just went up and like mashed a bunch of buttons. And I just thought like laws of magnets type thing because he dumped the chips that close to Stonehenge. They were just going to go crazy. Um, 
But no, that makes a lot more sense what you said. At the same time, it's still not explained how he learned, you know, how to how to be a television uh, director and, you know, the, the process of his day. But <laughs> Well, I think he'd been paying attention, actually. You know, when he was pretending to be in shock over the death Taking of mental uh, notes. Buddy. Yeah, he was, he was like photographic memory. He was checking and seeing which buttons were pushed the entire time. Whatever the case, however we came to it, all them bitches be dropping from these uh, chips, <laughs> getting, uh, you know, lighting them up, creating all these hemorrhages and these uh, robots and cyborgs, androids, whatever you want to call them. And then the the big one is Cochran, who's standing in front of the Stonehenge. And essentially what happens is that all these chips form this circle of energy that then tie to Stonehenge and turn him into a crystal being before he just evaporates into the they, ether. They turn him into Dormammu. <laughs> and then we wouldn't see him again for another 40 years when uh, Benedict Cumberbatch came to bargain. He does get an awesome villain exit, though, in that he realizes, you know, his uh, his turkey's cooked. He knows he's done here. <laughs> and he just looks up at Tom Adkins and, you know, kind of gives him the glaring, you son of a bitch. And then he gives him a sl- <laughs> uh, slow clap. I thought it was a, an awesome way for the bad guy to go out. It's my favorite part of the movie, but Alex... I'm going to blow your mind because I think on second watch, just knowing what we know, I think that this low clap is not for Atkins. I think he's clapping at Ellie. Mind blown. Obviously, the first time I watched it, I read it like you did. But this time I was like, oh, he's no, he's not giving Atkins any credit. He's just saying, oh, you're going to get him, Ellie. Good job. Or that was like him turning her on, like activating her. Ah, Yes. Yeah, like like those lamps that you just clap and they come on. He goes out with a smile on his face, though, so God bless him. Dr. Chalice and Ellie flee the scene on their way out. Basically, the uh, it looks as though the entire Silver Shamrocks factory is just this giant and looming cloud. It's like Ghostbusters shit that's going on. And uh, they, they're fortunate enough to escape. You notice Ellie hasn't said a word for like the past 15 minutes of the movie. And Which is very different from how she was in the first half of the movie. And if Tom Adkins had any, you know, less of an ego or any respect for women, he probably would have lightened up and been like, wait a minute. She hasn't said anything. Oh, we also- I'm surprised he didn't notice that she wasn't trying to uh, to hook up with him on the way out. <laughs> Give him like a hand jibber or roadhead on the way back. He's <laughs> like, wait a minute. This isn't right. We did forget to mention that he does get one last dig in at his ex-wife when he calls her and explains that, you know, don't let the kids have those masks. And she's like, you're just jealous. And he's she's yelling and he goes, Listen, sh- shut up. <laughs> he just straight up tells her to shut up. It's fantastic last exchange between him and his ex-wife. But of course, we the audience, if we're paying attention, we know something ain't right with Ellie. And it's because she's a fucking android. And she begins attacking uh, Dr. Chalice on the ride and they swerve off the road. Uh, he grabs, once they swerve off, they engage in hand-to-hand combat, and uh, he gra- isn't it the tire iron from the trunk of the car? Yes, because, well, yeah, because they crash against the tree, so the trunk pops open, and, yeah, she's trying to strangle him with one arm, because <laughs> in the crash, somehow she loses an arm. And he doesn't want to, but he knows that he has no choice, so he hits her repeatedly with the tire iron until it lobs her head completely off. And okay, I'm glad I'm glad that you noticed the hesitation too, because oh, I thought yeah. that maybe I was I was just projecting. And but I did get that moment. It's it's brief, it's fleeting, but I did get that moment where I could see Atkins 
trying to figure out if maybe he could live with this, if he could just still make it work. You know, can I, you know, can I still have a thing with this with this android? Because she's pretty cute still, even missing an arm. But then he he just goes to town with the tire iron. And then, you know, we think it's okay, but like with any good horror movie, we get the one last jump scare where her fucking arm comes back to life and tries to start strangling him in the car. And uh, just awesomely, he just takes it and he's like, fuck, and he gets it off of him and just hoofs it into the forest. You know, this thing, <laughs> it could potentially come back and that should have been the last shot of the movie is the hand, you know, just crawling back through. He is free for now. And he takes off running, and we're right back to where we started, the gas station from the beginning of the movie. And he sees the attendant who says, don't I know you? He's like, (laughs) I need your phone. He says, it's a matter of life and death. And so he runs in and calls, I don't know who, I guess the operator. Who is he talking to? That's the biggest mystery of the movie. Because he's talking to somebody who has the power to affect the programming in three different stations. Uh, Who would have been the president in 82? Was that Reagan era? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's using the special Tom Atkins hotline directly yeah. to the street, to the White House. Yeah, it would have been Ronnie. They just get a shot. At, Hello, is this <laughs> Doctor Chalice? It was either Ronald Reagan or Rupert Murdoch, is who I surmised he was talking to. <laughs> but he's he just says, "Hey, you got to take this off." And it's awesome because like this is acting with a capital A, a capital C, a capital T, and an I N G is him clearly you know no one else is on the other line of that and he's just yelling he's like no i can't prove it you just gotta believe me (laughs) say it's a bomb i don't care what you say it works though the the children uh, this gas station is in the middle of fucking nowhere but these kids are out there (laughs) i guess uh, you know the guy was prepared the gas station attendee had a little uh, hubcap with candy on her maybe it was a trash can lid but they come in and they know it's the time for the big giveaway with silver shamrock and Happy, happy Halloween. And then they get shut off on one channel. Channel two gets shut off. Channel three, it's still playing. And my God, sweaty Tom Atkins, for the love of God, you got to shut it off. Shut it off now. Please shut it off. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. Your, your Tom Atkins impression got uncanny right there. Uh, it's It's crazy because can you imagine if he was trying to do that today? All the channels he would have to go through. <laughs> it was only three, and he still fucked up. He still couldn't get to the last one. Or yeah. did he? What's What's your read, Alex? Did we, did we get a happy ending? Uh, it doesn't matter. That's like a great horror movie ending. That's like uh, the original ending for Invasion of the Body Snatchers that eventually had to be changed because the studio didn't like the ambiguity of it. The idea of like, well, did, did people figure it out or not? And with this, <laughs> I mean, it's, that was the first thing my sister said was over. She's like, oh, that ending is awesome. Uh, I mean, I would hope. I don't like the idea that millions of children died, and I, I hope that didn't happen. Um, I think the point is that whether he he succeeded or not, Tom Atkins has been changed forever, <laughs> and there's a pretty good chance that he will never have sex again. And isn't that what really matters? I, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, growth for a character. The post credit scene is him at his five year sober uh, AA meeting, and. <laughs> Uh, talking about how he hasn't had sex since then either. And every night I see Ellie's face. Um, Actually, the post credit scene is him finding the body of Teddy, who gets a brutal death, even though it's nowhere near as graphic. But she is the only character that it seems like they were trying to make an example out of her mm-hmm. because they don't just crush her skull or anything. The guy, the robot, takes a drill to her head 
That's right. Yeah, we forgot to cover that, but essentially they get wind that he she's helping him out with the case uh, and that she figures it out. She's like, she calls the police. She's like, hold on a second. Something ain't right here. And then unfortunately, too little, too late. Day late and a dollar short, as they say. Whatever the case, we will never know. This movie is nearly 40 years old. The debate rages on. Well, we'll never know because not enough people. Tom Atkins saved the world. (laughs) Uh, Here's a question that has a very definite answer, Alex. Do you know how many times they play that that jingle in the movie? Do you like have an exact number in front of you? I I counted, yeah. Uh, I'm going to guess nine. You're a little short. Eleven times. Good God. I know. But and yet I have to say less times than I thought from what I remember watching it the first time. I had this idea in my head that it was playing constantly, which I guess goes to prove that it, it just it's such an earworm that you're hearing it even when it's not being played in the movie. <laughs> it's constantly on your mind, much like pussy and booze for Tom Atkins. <laughs> That's what it really was about. Halloween 3 season of The Witch is about addiction. I mean, yeah, that and the invasion of religion, specifically Scientology and Mormonism. Uh, You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) That's why you like the movie. We're going to be recording the real talk portion, and you're just going to hear people barge in my room and rip my head off. (laughs) All right. Well, are you ready for real talk? Let's do it, my friend. Hey, uh, just a second. You, uh, you happen to know anything about this Cochrane? Cock. Do I know anything? He made Santa Maria what it is today. Dried up a little pile of nothing. Let me tell you something, mister. He brought in every damn one of them factory people from the outside. You think huh. he'd hire me, local boy? No way. Turn me down flat. You haven't got a dollar you can spare, do you? Hmm. Thank you. All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Seen the TV cameras yet? He's watching you, friend, I guarantee you that. Hey, Cochran! Fuck you! It's all right, it's all right, it don't matter to me. He's probably listening. If he is, I got one thing to say. It's the last Halloween for that lousy factory of his. Pretty wild shit going on in there. I, I, I heard rumors. Like what? What'd you hear? This year, I'm gonna get me about a case and a half of Molotov cocktails. Burn that son of a bitch right down. Last Halloween for them. Last Halloween. Hello, Contrarians listeners. Before we move on to Real Talk, a friend of ours wanted to chime in her thoughts on Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. This is a fellow pro wrestling fan and horror movie connoisseur, Kelly Black, and Halloween 3 Season of the Witch is her favorite horror movie of all time. So she wanted to be sure to provide her thoughts on the film for this installment of Haddonfield Nights. Be sure to follow Kelly on Twitter at KellyHatesYou. Kelly spelled K-E-L-L-E-E. Hates You is pretty self-explanatory. I was fortunate enough to see this movie in the theater alongside Kelly, and the excitement was palpable. Following Kelly's thoughts will be real talk on Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. So come, join us, and don't forget your mask. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Okay, so I just wanted to preface this by saying that I'm actually one of those people that had no idea that Michael Myers wasn't going to be in the third movie uh, when I first watched it. 
I actually had an untraditional viewing of the Halloween series. I watched the movies when I rented them from Blockbuster. So I actually watched four very first and then five and then three. And I actually didn't watch the first Halloween movie until I was probably almost 18. Um, Halloween three is easily my favorite horror movie, if not one of my favorite movies of all time. Since the first time I watched it, I've always been kind of enamored with every aspect of it. It's just weird and crazy and funny and there's so many gimmicks to it. As I get older and I rewatch it, there's just like new facets to it that I'm just like, amazed like I love this movie the score that John Carpenter did for it I've always loved his composing but especially the soundtrack that he did for Halloween 3 is so much fun I love like how it has like the banal tones that he usually does for the Halloween series but adding the synth notes to it with the keyboards and everything it's just really fun and creepy the theme song I've actually had it as my ringtone for like at least six or seven years. Bump, 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 bump. I play it for my friends quite often. I actually have the lights in my house set up to react to that song so that they all start like flickering orange. The three masks, they're iconic. I actually have them all tattooed on my arm. The plot of it is just bananas. This warlock guy that like makes robot men and he stole a rock from Stonehenge to uh, put little shards into children's masks so that he can do like mass child genocide on Halloween for a good harvest for his company. What? There's just so much to process there and it's it's a really fun idea and I love the execution of it. He's like yeah whatever he's not even like a creepy sinister person lurking in the night. He's just this old uncle that you have that's like, guess what? I'm going to blow up children's heads. It's going to be really funny. Tom Adkins in this movie is fantastic. He is not the guy that you would expect to be the protagonist. You know, like they've had like young girls the whole time. And now it's just like middle-aged Tom Adkins. He's kind of chubby. He's boozed up. Like he decides to follow this girl that's probably 19 at most on a conspiracy theory just so he can get laid, you know, and then when she becomes a robot and he has to chop off her head, he's like unfazed by it. He's like, whatever. Um, I love his performance at the end of the movie when at the gas station, he's like, stop it. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! And that's how they end the movie, and you have no idea if mass trial genocide has happened. And you're like, okay. It's it's a crazy-ass movie. I always have loved it. I don't honestly know why it gets such a bad rap. People that say that Halloween 3 is the worst of the series are liars, or they have clearly never seen 5. Um, because that movie is not fun for anyone to watch. All right, I am recording for Real Talk for Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Julio, I realized about halfway through Contrarian's Corner that I had already abandoned something I had implemented in our last episode, and that is reviewing which version of the movie we watched. And again, version... I I thought about it too. I figured we would just bring it up in Real Talk. I was just about to say, we'll go ahead and kick off with that. So, did you get this through Amazon? Uh, Yes, and uh, I don't know if you saw, but yeah, that was one of the tweets to just set our timeline on fire because I mentioned that it was kind of baffling that 
uh, a Halloween three season of the witch rental was a, a more expensive rental than the original Halloween. And then, of course, I got a bunch of uh, replies that were like, well, of course, because it's better. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I watched the uh, Universal DVD release from 2003, back when DVD transfers were taken a bit more seriously and done more well. Um, and as you know, how I am a big mark for uh, original signatures being kept on, which in a lot of modern DVDs, those aren't. Uh, it had the old school universal signature on it or old school, the eighties one. So I was a big fan of that. The DVD, like the uh, plot summation on the back. Of course, the main thing it highlights is producer John Carpenter. It has producer in small print. And then, um, and then it says Ellie and Daniel uncover Cochran's shocking Halloween plan that must, and must stop him before trick or treaters across the country. Never come home in this terrifying thriller. So that's not right. The idea is they do come home. They just never leave home. They come home to watch the TV. <laughs> that's, well, I mean, I guess there's some uh, some kids that just happen to watch the broadcast on, on those TVs that are outside the stores. Yes, or just, just wandered into a gas station in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. Uh, yes. Yeah. What a movie. What an interesting film. Uh, so... so Obviously, you own it. Unlike Halloween, uh, the original, I'm assuming you only own one copy of Season of the Witch. Correct. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, just a DVD copy I own. Uh, they the um, I can't remember if it was Scream Factory. There's um, that production company that owns a lot of horror movies now that releases like incredibly high res Blu-rays of them. Mm-hmm. Um, is it Shout? Screen. I, I can't remember which one it is. Let me see here. Shout Factory, uh, I believe, has the Halloween three Blu-ray they released a few years ago. They they're kind of um, kinda like a horror criterion in the sense of the box art is always exclusive to that release, and mm. uh, there's always a lot of special features that are really cool. And like I said, the transfers are pretty spotless i I own a few of them black christmas uh sleepaway camp um vampire lovers and so i to answer your question i just own the dvd i'm sorry it took me so long to get that out but yeah it's uh i just own the original i thought it was gonna end with a commitment to own the blu-ray by next week well i have it pulled up here it's only 15 bucks so we'll see i don't know if i like it that much i think the dvd i got for it was like five bucks and that's that's Good enough for me. And like I said, the transfer is very respectable. Oh, uh, man. What a what an interesting movie. So this is your second time seeing this, correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. Uh, but even the even the first time I watched it, I knew that it wasn't that Michael Myers movie. Uh, and I knew, perhaps uh, wrongly, that it was the black sheep of the series or that it was... I, I thought it was considered the black sheep of the series, as I said earlier. Uh, maybe not so much. Ah, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, yeah, apparently it has, it has very a very passionate fan base. But uh, yeah, second time. I watched it for the first time last year. I think... I'll pull it up on my letterbox to see how much I gave it. But yeah, go ahead. I think one of the reasons it does have such a... Uh, loud is a very... That, that has a negative connotation. A very... Um, impassioned fan base is because the fan base for it. I don't think you're going to find a casual moviegoer that swears by Halloween three. I think it's a big thing of uh, horror, specifically horror fans feel the need to speak up for it because so many casual people 
uh, dismissed it and discarded it because it was a Halloween movie without Michael Myers. I what hurts it is that there's nothing else like it in this in the franchise. <laughs> I think if maybe they had made another one or two in this uh, anthological idea that they had of yeah, the movies are called Halloween because it's something that happens on Halloween and you know tales from the crypt. Uh, Twilight Zone, mm. that type of thing. I think maybe this had a chance to stand out as being the good one of those, but because it, <laughs> it's uh, it because it's just like it, black sheep is a good term to use because it really is the only one of its kind. And then immediately after it, they're like, nope, we have to go back to basics and bring back Michael. Immediately is not true because it was five years or six years before Part Four came out. But you know what I mean. Yeah, it's um. I, I'm trying to think of a film franchise that took a risk like this. Obviously, again, like I said last uh, on our last episode, when I compared the Halloween franchise to Star Wars, you have to understand the pedestals are on very differing planes. But uh, this is the Rogue One of the franchise. Yeah, well, Rogue One rules, and that's this. Uh, I wouldn't say this is as good as Rogue One. <laughs> I mean, if you want to get down to it, both of them have the balls to kill everybody at the end, so that's pretty cool. Nothing ambiguous about the end of uh, Rogue One, though. So, yeah, it was uh, one day shy of six years later uh, on the dot that Halloween 4 came out, The Return of Michael Myers, with uh, which is the best sequel in the entire franchise, um, which made a lot of money, made almost $20 million to this movie's uh, $14 million with the, I mean, this movie had a budget of two and a half million, so making fourteen off that is, I, I would count that as a win. I don't know about you. Yeah, at least one person on Twitter told me that this one was better than four, five, and six. That is uh, wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> Halloween four. I mean, I, I wanted to save that for the end, but since it's already just come up here, Halloween four is the best sequel by a country mile. Not including the uh, 2018 one because that that kind of changed everything. But as far as the original run go of sequels, Halloween Four is the best one, and um, that's that. So thank you for listening <laughs> to the Contrarians. <laughs> All right, so back to the lecture at hand here. Halloween Three, box office. I uh, said 14 million for a budget of uh, under three, which is good. Uh, directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. Uh, produced by Deborah Hill and John Carpenter as their third return, uh, or sec- I guess second return technically, to uh, the Halloween franchise. Even less enthusiastic than uh, Halloween 2, which was not that enthusiastic to begin with. And it's credited as written by Tommy Lee Wallace, which is a massive uh, oversight. It was basically a script that was mishmashed between three people. One of them was Tommy Lee Wallace. One was John Carpenter. And then uh, a famous uh, sci-fi horror writer uh, by the name of Nigel. Uh, I read his name in print so many times, but uh, I've never actually heard it pronounced. So I don't know if it's Keneal or Neil or what it is, but um, he wrote the original script refused to have any feedback or any changes to it. So then John Carpenter came in and then Tommy Lee Wallace came in and kind of redid it. So, uh, this, uh, Nigel character, Nigel Neal or Keneal again, sir, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Uh, after he saw what the final product was, I think he threatened to sue if they didn't take his name off of it completely. So 
the idea of the movie was his, but he just found the gratuitous violence to be abhorrent and didn't want anything to do with it. It's I really a- hope he also returned the money that they paid him uh, <laughs> to make that movie, right? <laughs> if he's such a man of principle, it, it would only make sense. <laughs> that, uh, you know, shoot it back. Uh, yeah, I mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis in the first portion being the um, the uh, the voice on the curfew of the curfew announcer, and uh, she is based on things. I, I read a lot of conflicting things. Some people claim her voice was used as the operator that uh, Tom Adkins speaks to, but that apparently has been debunked several times. But from what I was able to find, uh, she is credited uh, or uncredited, but did do the voice of the curfew time to turn in because again like we mentioned the first portion just a just a great sport overall (laughs) um like i I was telling julio before we actually started recording the second half here there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, about the production of this movie and like i said the script and how the script was kind of hot potatoed and the different directors they went through i i don't want to get too deep into it just because it doesn't really have too much to do with Julio and I's opinions, but I will say the chapter in the uh, Taking Shape book that I've referenced on the two previous installments, uh, Taking Shape by Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins, uh, the chapter on this movie is pretty fascinating. And it is just that it's uh, John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, and the people, the creative forces behind this movie came into this, you know, saying, all right, Michael's dead. So what we're going to do is create. <laughs> We're going to start something new in this and this idea of this anthology. So my first question out of the gate, before we get into the reviews, Julio, the first question about Halloween 3 is, do you think this idea can work? Yes. Uh, but you would need to get... Oh, man, this is going to sound so rough. But I think... No, okay. My first answer is, the one that's coming from the goddess, yes, but you need to get stronger talent which sounds super mean. Uh, and it's also not accurate because when I think about it, no, you could also, you could still make it work, but you had to come out stronger to get out of, from under the shadow of the first two Halloweens. Mm-hmm. So would I watch uh, a horror anthology uh, produced by John Carpenter? Yes. Or at least, yes, if I was into that sort of thing. Uh but would I uh, have negative reaction if I was a Halloween fan and I watched this? If they tried to shoehorn an anthology where uh, where there wasn't one before, yes, probably. So I don't know. It seemed like an ill-advised idea. Maybe if he had done some sort of passing of the torch, you know, like having Michael Myers for five seconds on a TV, I don't think it's enough. I think that maybe you should have done like Halloween 3, you know, you kind of do the anthology thing in the sense that there's no Lori, there's no Loomis, it's Michael, and it's medieval times. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Michael is the constant. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think it can work, yes. But in order to work for me, you have to do it very differently. And I think also in order for it to work for a wider audience, uh, you would have to make a cleaner break from the franchise. I think, sadly, I think you shouldn't have called it Halloween. You should have just called it something else from the producers of Halloween, Mm -hmm. from the minds behind Halloween. Here comes this brand new anthology. And maybe that way you would have saved yourself the headache. Mustafa Akkad presents the team that made Halloween presents 
season of the witch starring tom atkins and introducing <laughs> stacy nelkin yeah you could have well, what would you have called it i mean of course well you don't have to tie yourself to halloween then you know no. uh, if you're not calling it halloween it can be anything that is the number one thing that fans of this movie say is that this is a great horror movie it just shouldn't have been called Halloween. Mustafa Akkad himself said something very similar to that. Halloween three is a great movie. It shouldn't have been named Halloween because that immediately turned so many people off from it. I don't know if I want to go so far as to call it a great movie. So now, okay. I'm glad, I'm glad you're the one saying that. (laughs) Yeah. So now we will get into the, uh, analytical portion of it because I do think it is a very interesting idea because you know, that scary stories that that's an, that's that movie that came out. That's like a, it's an anthology of stories, but it's obviously crammed into one movie. And with this, it's yeah, it, it's hard to do. And that, that's what they try to do with the Friday the 13th television show, kind of. Um, mm-hmm. And Freddy's Nightmares, I think, was the name of that show. But that's completely different than, you know, your major motion motion picture releases that if you want to take create this spinoff elsewhere, that's fine. And I think there is something admirable to the fact that they tried this, but We'll we'll get to that as it comes. I, but just based on hearing you say, you know, your interest in seeing Michael in these particular circumstances, it's just making me giddy for uh, when we get to part six, where Michael is in a cult and uh, is basically <laughs> they're a cult that's roamed the earth since the dawn of man, and they've used him as their <laughs> instrument of destruction. It's going to be phenomenal. So Julio, forty-two percent on Rotten Tomatoes means most people didn't really enjoy it too much, but what were some of the positive results that uh, or positive uh, praise that came from this? Okay. So, so I got three red tomatoes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. Uh, R.L. Schaefer from IGN DVD says, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch might have been hated back in the day, but it simply doesn't deserve the anger and animosity nowadays. And I'll agree with this. Uh, of course, I'm divorced from the, the passionate disappointment of wanting a Halloween 3 that was like Halloween 1 and 2 and then not getting it. But I, I don't see anything in this movie that you would to get yourself worked up about. No. You know what I mean? Even if you don't like it. Even if you think it's just 100% a bad movie I don't know that I would get mad about it. It's not even long. Uh, Anytime someone would bitch to me about this uh, in terms of like being part of the Halloween franchise, I tell them I found Rob Zombie's second Halloween to be so much more offensive. The fact that he has like Michael talk and just all the <laughs> bullshit that he puts in that movie. That's way more. Um, hey, boo. <laughs> that, that bastardizes the, the franchise way more than womanizer drunk Tom Adkins. Yeah. I to me getting mad about like somebody that you're talking about anger and animosity. That just makes me think of the people that that are still mad about the Last Jedi, yeah. You know, and I say that as somebody who's still mad about Rise of Skywalker, <laughs> but but I won't go That's online different. to just complain about it, you know. Uh, okay, Jeffrey M. Anderson from Combustible Celluloid says the actual movie is filled with amusingly strange ideas, some supremely dark, horrific material, and some flat out kooky stuff. Also accurate. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, and finally, Charles Webb from MTV. It's a movie about the widespread death and destruction via Technomagic, and it's just a huge disappointment that it took years after its initial release for Halloween 3 to find an audience. Uh, I love that there's just a, a review from MTV. It's like MTV on print, or are they quoting him from, uh, I don't know, one of their, one of their shows? <laughs> uh, 
MTV News or Yo MTV Raps. We're talking about <laughs> Halloween 3 on this episode. Um, yeah, it's definitely a movie that has, with time, gained a greater appreciation or a greater fan base. I don't really think it set the world on fire when it came out. I know it didn't. Um, but now it's, you know, amongst horror fans, that closing scene of Tom Adkins is one of the more famous ones of and easy to quote. And I, I saw this at a Terror Tuesday with friends of the podcast, Reed and uh, Kelly, who Kelly specifically fucking loves this movie. And Reed does, too. Um I think they both like it a bit more than I do, but being in an audience, like a sold out audience at the draft house for it. Remember movies when we used to go to those and, um, <laughs> it's definitely a movie. Just like drinking with the hobo. It's yes. just something that who knows when we'll be able to do it again. It's definitely a movie that I don't think people take too seriously, uh, which is good because they shouldn't. Yeah. It's not a movie to take seriously. Whereas there's still, people like myself and obviously a lot of people like myself that still take a bit of pride uh, in like the original Halloween, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But then there's movies like these that we can like, but still, at least from my vantage point, I can stand far enough away from it to point and laugh at it. Uh, I can say I enjoy watching it because again, it falls in the 90 minute range and there's enough in it for me to enjoy. And the story is interesting enough to keep me invested but it's still i'm very capable of pointing and laughing at it when it's bad and dumb because there's plenty of that in there too <laughs> yeah there's plenty <laughs> uh yeah i we've, we've talked about it on the podcast before how i am not really uh watching movies that are bad or movies that i consider bad is really not my my kind of thing I enjoy hearing people talk about movies that are bad or movies that are poorly made or what have you more than I enjoy actually sitting through those movies. Um, I've said it before here. It's one of the reasons why I still haven't watched The Room mm -hmm. all the way through. Um, that was the main difference watching it again versus watching it the first time. Even with everything that I knew about it going in the first time, I it, one of the reasons I didn't have a good time was because I I didn't think it was particularly good, but I also didn't feel comfortable laughing at it. Uh, this time around, when I was watching it, I was laughing, and I and it felt fine. It actually made the the experience a lot better. I I can't take this movie seriously, even though it has a couple of really good moments as far as it being scary and being creepy. Right? Uh, we talked about the close up on Marge's face, yeah. and of course the child just what they do to buddy's son is just what the hell uh and then the ending of course the ending is amazing uh but forget the adventures of tom atkins i just can't you know if i take them seriously then i i won't enjoy the movie there's nothing that happens in this movie that makes any sense mm -hmm. and uh yes i was <laughs> i wasn't being serious i was obviously kidding when i was praising uh Ellie's, what's her last name? Stacy, what? Uh, Nelkin. Nelkin. I mean, it's not her fault. She's, you know, the story dictates that she has to, the way she grieves her father is by hooking up with Tom Atkins and mm -hmm. going on an adventure. Uh, I mean, I guess there's a way of writing that turn of events in a 
way that's sort of believable. But here, it just felt borderline like watching a porno in the way that <laughs> they set up the romance. <laughs> yeah, I was just waiting for like the chong, 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 chong music where when she's like, well, do you want to go to another room? Uh, and, and so that's, I don't know, to me, this is ludicrous. Uh pretty much from beginning to end with those exceptions where, where it gets really ugly. Uh, but that's fine because it, it's, it actually made it fun. Once I made peace with the fact that this was a very silly movie, it reminded me a little bit of when we watched Halloween five. And, uh, of course, that was a very different experience because I was watching it for the first time while we were doing a commentary for it. And I had you and Reed, who had seen it plenty of times with me. So that kind of guided my experience a lot more than just watching uh, Seasons of the Witch by myself both times. Uh, but I, I kind of got that vibe where it's like, this is not a good movie. This is certainly not the kind of movie that I, I would consider good. But it's silly enough that I can laugh at it. And it's not like it's trying to tell me to take it seriously. Yeah. And that that makes a huge difference, which of course makes it more even more rewarding when you get to the moments where it, it takes itself seriously. You know those three that I listed earlier. Uh, so no anger, no animosity. I wouldn't say that I, I I wouldn't recommend this to anyone who's not into that kind of uh, oh let's watch something even though we know it's bad. Like I think to me one of the biggest drawbacks. I don't I don't like the acting. I yeah. I. Don't I think most of the actors are just not good, and of course you could argue that they don't need to be good for this sort of material, right? But uh, I don't know. Maybe how do you feel about the acting here? Do you do you think that it's what's needed, or do you think that they could have used a stronger cast? Uh, Tom Atkins, Tom Atkins, notwithstanding, because I think that he actually, you know, he. He carries a movie and that's fine, but I I felt like every time they they had like a different uh, the smaller parts. Uh, what's her name? Teddy. I, I I felt Teddy was pretty bad. Again, it's not like she's she's working with like Aaron Sorkin's dialogue, but yeah, it, it was still just kind of like clunky. The kind of performance that it's inviting you not to take it seriously. So maybe maybe it's all intentional. I don't know, but it that to me is like one of the big things. So, mm. uh, yeah. See, I. I think that Tom Atkins and Dan O'Herlihy... Um, That's a bad guy, right? Yes. I yeah. think they nail the tone of the movie, and at least what I interpret the tone to be. And if the mm -hmm. movie was just comprised of performances like theirs, uh, I would enjoy it a lot more. So I do want to go back to one thing. I do not watch movies that I think are bad more than once. Now, when I say bad, I mean it's not The Departed. It's not, you know, uh, Inside Lewin Davis. It's not... That's what I have to say. Shakespeare in Love. Oh, come on. Uh, you know. The King's Speech. God damn it. Intouchable. <laughs> social Network. And Social Network. There you go. It's bad compared to that. But these movies that I watch, these horror movies, when I say, you know, they're bad, they're bad on a being, you know, all things being equal. But... I don't think they're bad. That's why I watch them. The people that do, there's a guy I work with that always is like, oh, have you seen this movie? It is so terrible. And it's just like, okay, I know I'm not going to watch it because, you know, I, I don't want to waste my time doing that. You know, that's, I always say, oh, you know, Friday the 13th part eight is this bad horror movie I really like. Cause yeah, it's bad compared to fucking alien, but <laughs> It, it, I will watch that a thousand times before I watch American Hustle again because to me, American Hustle is a bad movie. 
I'm just trying to think of movies that like I think are bad that I have watched. And I'm like, that is a bad movie. Ro- the second Rob Zombie's Halloween is an example that is pertinent to what we're talking about. I think that is a bad movie, so I won't watch it. I just wanted to clarify that because I know you've said that before. No, no, no. It's, it's an important clarification. I, I, and actually, I was kind of struggling to find – because see, I mean, it says something. Just if nothing else, it says something that I have trouble just being mean, saying mean things about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not a movie that made me angry, which has happened before. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even a movie where I could just, maybe it doesn't make me angry, but it just makes me be indifferent. I do appreciate what they were trying to do. I, I think that they were, you know, we just said I, maybe it was kind of misguided. They didn't do it the, the, the best way possible. But I like the idea of saying, okay, let's go in a completely different way. And we're going to have a very different tone, but we're going to throw some some big, scary moments here and there you know the the effort i think it's there yeah so so yeah i agree this is not bad in the sense that like paul blart right just going back to like our early early days contrarians year one like paul blart is a movie that we covered back then and that movie made me angry i'm that movie i just wouldn't watch it again right season of the witch yeah i'm not gonna watch it on my own for sure but that's you know, in my case, I'm not even much of a horror person. So, you know, it has to be a big thing for me to, to do it to begin with. But I would not protest if somebody played it in the background, you know, at a house party. Mm-hmm. Or if somebody, you know, if we were just hanging out with some people, and they're like, hey, you want to put in Season of the Witch? I'd be like, yeah, that sounds like a fun thing to do. It's like a romp. But yeah, uh, to go back to your original question, I think there's two performances in it that are really good for what I interpret the tone of this movie to be. Those being Tom Adkins and Dana Hurley. Uh, even if the writing stayed the same, if you, uh, no disrespect to Stacey Nelkin, but she comes across as way too innocent and juvenile in the role that she's given, even if it is just one of like, oh, my dad died, time to fuck. Like, it's... Uh, <laughs> I. <laughs> There probably are actresses of that time that could have pulled that off. Um, and like you said, Terry and God, the um, buddy and his whole family. Just I understand that there has to be like a family that's used as the 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 test subject. But yeah, it it starts jumping tonally all over the place. And there are parts of it that, yeah, that don't click it's just like a bag of legos that don't go together there's like two of the big pieces that go together really well and then the rest of them aren't good for anything yeah that's that's a good way of putting it it's not it just doesn't come together the way that it should in order for me to say yeah this is a good movie (laughs) (laughs) uh but there is again it all it all has to do with what the goal was, right? What they yeah. were aiming for. Because at the same time, I can also criticize the script for just not being, uh, you know, it's like, it's not The Departed or it's not even like the first Halloween. But uh, but that's not, I don't think that's what they were going for. So while I would have liked, I, I like the idea, right? The, the, the idea that these masks, this master plan in order to kill a whole bunch of kids using these masks that are connected to the powers of Stonehenge and who knows what else. Yeah, you can make a movie out of that. And and they did. But <laughs> I, I would say it's not the best version of that movie. Even if you stuck with the with the kind of like schlocky, like kitschy approach to, to telling it, you know, that that kind of tone. I, I wish that there was I think you could come up with a tighter tighter story. When when I see 
people defending it because it's a good story, I think, well, maybe it's a good idea. I don't know that it's a good story. It has a really good ending. Yeah. But then the way that we get to that ending, it's I, I wish it was more interesting than that. I I think that if I wasn't so focused on having fun writing notes about Tom Atkins and just like the awesomeness of Tom Atkins, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the performer, and the things that he gets away with here and the way the things that he make his character do. If you remove that element, which is kind of a meta element, the char- the doctor himself, Dr. Hollis, is that his last name? Chalice. Chalice. Dr. Chalice, he's really not that... That you know, he's just he gets laid a lot. He has mm-hmm. a shitty family, and and you know, I made the joke that he was more interesting than Loomis. Okay, well, that's not true, of course. <laughs> Loomis is a much more compelling character than than this guy. Yeah, of course, this guy is is leading a very different movie. But I don't know that I find myself uh, rooting for him the way that I would root against Michael. You know, f- root for Loomis against Michael, even root for Laurie against Michael. Uh, I, I checked my letterbox review before we started recording this yeah. to remember how I felt uh, uh, the first time around. And even back then, I remember thinking, I wish we'd gotten more of the bad guys because that's the side that I find more interesting. This this town <laughs> that is just a factory of evil and Mr. Cochran... Uh, what else is going on through his head? <laughs> you know, When you compare... Dr. Uh, fuck, I forget again. Dr. Hollis, Chalice. Dr. Chalice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you compare Tom Atkins and, and his girlfriend with, with these evil guys that are creating robots and they're creating masks and they have just a very, very crazy way of uh, a very, very crazy plan to destroy the world. That to me seemed like a much more interesting material to mine for for the bulk of the movie. And I think that one of the reasons I feel that, that way is just because I'm not really that invested in what happens with uh, with Atkins and and uh, and Ellie. I I don't buy into her her grief. You know, it comes across as fake, so I don't really care. To me, it's just she comes across as somebody who's just having fun with the pretext of uh, investigating her father's death, and. And Tom Atkins comes across as somebody who's there because he's he's chasing tail. Yeah, you know, I know that the original setup should have been wow, he's so traumatized by what he saw at the hospital that night that the only way that he can exercise this demon is to go on in this investigation, and that puts him uh, on the same path as this woman who is so perplexed by her death of her father that the only way she can handle it is by going into this investigation but that's not really you know it just really feels like these are just two adults hanging out having fun getting laid and on on the side they're kind of having this investigation so uh if they were more interesting i think that i i would also consider it a stronger movie i'd probably be more invested but because they're not i actually kind of want the bad guys to win uh i i just want to see more crazy shit happen and i don't care if uh if our heroes come out on top so I think that's something also that, you know, that affected me viewing. Now, I don't know. I, I kind of get the feeling that you are rooting for them. When you're watching this movie, Alex, are you just Team Atkins all the way? Uh, I mean, yeah, in the sense of just, hey, good guy needs to win. I think the the story to this is so, because the movie's so kind of goofy, 
that the idea of the bad guy is to like murder the entire child base of the United <laughs> States or the world is fucking crazy. And then it does get so ridiculously out of control that he's like harnessing the power of Stonehenge to melt kids' heads and stuff, which is obviously way more evil than anything Michael's done in any of his movies. Um, I guess I don't know who I'm rooting for because every time I've watched this movie, it's been from a distance of just like watching this happen. Like I said, the first time I saw it, it was mid-teens. And it was just to kind of see it because I hadn't. I already knew that, you know, what the it was a deviation from the Michael franchise. And um, like I said, I kind of watched it and I was just like, okay, that was something. The the scene of little buddy's head getting, you know, completely whatevered the nothing like I wasn't kidding in the first portion. If you don't know that's coming, nothing can really prepare you for that. Even after that woman gets shot in the face with the laser and that like mosquito came out of her mouth or a cricket uh-huh. that that's weird, but nothing can really prepare you for the little kid's head melting and it turning into snakes. Like that's, that is like a memorable horror scene for me. Like, you know, if I live another 50 years, when I reflect on memorable horror moments, that's one that immediately <laughs> comes to mind. Because like I said, I had no idea that was coming. And it was like, and I was past the stage of like, you know, ooh, horror movies. And like that freaked me the fuck out. So kudos to that. That is that is what I think of when I think of this movie. And then, of course, secondly, is Tom Adkins telling his ex-wife, shut up. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it goes from like, it's just kind of too all over the place for me to really get invested in a side. I just feel like every time I watch it, I more just kind of watch it all unfold and you just let it happen. I, I kind of wish there was more. I kind of wish there was a sequel to this movie specifically. Cause I wish there was more from uh, Cochrane cause there's that it, it, at its core, that's like what the novelization of the original Halloween and a lot of the stories that we will get into uh, later that, um, they say Sam Hain. I know I pronounced it correctly in the first portion, but I can't remember it. Sam Huin? Sawin. Sawin is how you cor- correctly pronounce it. That idea of the witchcraft and the original sacrifice and where the origins of Halloween came from, that always fascinates me, that portion of it, or that aspect of it, I should say. So tying into it there is really cool. But then again, the end is just kind of like Tom Adkins figures out how to become a TV producer in 30 seconds and starts playing this commercial. <laughs> and like Like you said something you can compliment of this is the movie itself at no point tells you to take it seriously. So you don't have to worry about doing that. Yeah. But can you imagine just the, the whiplash that neither of us had to deal with the disappointment that those people had to deal with in 1982? No, we, we didn't go into it blind to the, to just how different it was going to be. So yeah, I, I understand. It would be the equivalent of, I don't know, you know, you go to watch the next Spider-Man movie and Spider-Man's not in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, um. well, you know, this was kind of a thing. Are you familiar with Jason Goes to Hell? Uh, I've seen it. That's the one that ends with the with the glove, right? Uh, with Freddy's glove pulling it. Correct. Pulling the mask. Yeah, 10, ten years one. before Freddy versus Jason came out. So that is also by a lot of people viewed as like the bastard child of that franchise. Cause they kind of did what happens here in that. Um, oh yeah. Jason he jumps from body to body. Exactly. Jason gets killed in the opening scene of the movie and it's it, Jason. Like 
it's not Jason. It's a curse that jumps around. So I, I think, you know, it's been tried and, you know, that came 10 years after this. So, I mean, give them credit. They, they, they knew what the potential backlash could be and they went for it. And at least that movie, uh, leads you to believe that Jason is going to be a main character in it by, I don't know, his name's in the fucking title. And, <laughs> and here it's, that's what Halloween three season of Michael Myers and all is, is him just on TV. Um, if I, if I read it correctly and understood correctly, uh, Halloween night, 1982 at 9 PM was the, the big giveaway for silver shamrock. Mm-hmm. And I think it worked out that it wasn't even like supposed to be cute and a nod. Yeah, here it is. Uh, on Halloween night, 1982, NBC aired Halloween, the original starting at 9 p.m. So, you know, it was kind of, <laughs> I hope, I hope there was a silver shamrock ad that played during that. Um, Hopefully. But again, this has a lasting legacy. There are a lot of people that love this movie more than I do. Uh, happy, happy Halloween, Halloween. That's embedded in the horror zeitgeist. And, you know, there are aspects of this that live on more than most of the other Halloween sequels. So I think it's worthy of credit in that aspect. But like I kind of my mission statement from the beginning, I think the people that trumpet it do it because there is a subsect of people that dismiss it. And I'm here to tell you neither of them are right. Uh, it's <laughs> it is not bad, and it should not be dismissed just because it has nothing to do with Michael Myers. And again, you know, you and I in this history of this podcast, over 100 episodes we've done, we're all for people taking risks when maybe they aren't even necessary. So I give them that cre- is an excellent point. Yes, yeah. I give them credit from that aspect. At the same time, to those people that love it, I would say, mm, calm it's down. A, it's okay. Yeah, calm, calm down. For yeah, the idea that someone said it's better than Halloween Four—that's come on, dog. <laughs> well, we like rooting for the underdog, though. So yeah. there is that. And and you were saying, you know, what if this wasn't a, a, a one-off? What if there were two or three other Halloweens that are just different stories? Would we look on this one more fondly? Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe by comparison, this would just actually look... Because it wouldn't be as reviled, then it also wouldn't be as defended mm-hmm. by the people who think it's okay. So, I don't know. I don't think that anybody's crying for a remake of a Season of the Witch. Uh, <laughs> no. Not, Rob Zombie's not going to get his hands on this one. I think it's uh, its impact has been made. And again... Um, for the people involved in it, I'm sure it's cool that this movie that kind of was not kind of, but was dogged on hard at the time, like Roger Ebert, you know, we, we spent a good portion uh, talking about him last time because of how much he loved the original. Uh, this movie was on his most hated list. Uh, so <laughs> he was one of those people in the theater, 1982, that just walked out. <laughs> what the fuck? Michael Myers on duds TV? At the screen. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, the, there are aspects to it that are interesting too. Adkins being a lush, but that kind of dies off pretty quickly. Uh, he does have the great line of "What time is it? I need a drink." I thought that was really funny. But um, and, and also, uh, I think it's in the middle of them having sex where he's like, "Wait, how old are you?" 
Oh, Jesus. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, that, that It is cool when movies that are uh, panned in their day. We talked about that long ago when we did Valley of the Dolls. That was one of those things, too. That movie was not that well received, but has since garnered um, both a cult and a genuine fan base. And that's the same thing here. Uh, I think it's cool that the people involved live to see that, to see that, you know, mm-hmm. hey, maybe at the time uh, this kind of sucked, but with, you know, time enduring and generations that have come forth or come since, I should say, you know, getting to hear compliments on your work. That's, that's cool. Um, but like with a lot of things specifically in the horror genre, because it already is a back against the wall type thing, especially for fans, uh, they're, it's, you know, it's very comparable to being a wrestling fan in that it's a niche thing. So you have to be on your guard about it from the get go. So when you like something, you have to be very uh, forward and to a certain extent, almost over the top with how much you like it. And then when you don't, you know, you have to be almost obtuse in your stance towards it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Halloween three, somewhere in the middle, uh, I would say I'm going to just go exactly in the middle. A a straight C is going to be what I'm going to give it because there are parts of it that work. There's some that don't, but I don't find it to be a failing movie. And, you know, a D is below average, and this is not a below average horror movie. I've seen plenty of below average and failing horror movies. This is perfectly fine. It just didn't succeed on all the fronts that it tried to. Um. I'm going to go a little slightly lower than down the middle. To me, it's two stars, which is what I gave it last time, uh, which is funny because even though I enjoyed myself more this time around, I think ultimately to me, it's still a two-star movie. It's just the kind of two-star movie that you can watch. It, the rare two-star movie for me that I wouldn't mind watching again you know, with friends and having fun with. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think I'll, I, I kind of want to give it more because you're right. There is a lot to be said about just taking a chance uh, after two successful Michael Myers installments. Uh, but at the same time, come on, I, I've, you know, it's, it just doesn't work for me uh, a lot of the time. I, the things that work, work really well, but not enough for me to, to give it more than two stars. Funnily enough, I'll, I'll mention it here because this will probably be a major point of contention when I finally get around to listening to this. But, uh, our friends Gerald from Two Piece on a Pod and Dan from Netflix and Swill, they're making their way through the entire Halloween franchise. They're going in order and they're doing every movie. Uh, Gerald is a big horror fan. Mm-hmm. Dan has never seen any of them. Oh, wow. I know. I haven't listened to any of their episodes because I wanted to get through our our show. Uh, I want to finish Haddonfield Nights so that their opinions don't influence mine at all. And then I'll listen. But I know just based on the comments I've seen that Dan hated uh, Season of the Witch. <laughs> I saw him respond to a, a tweet or something earlier. Where he, was, he was just it's something about like, I'll never forgive you for making me watch this. Yes. Uh, but on the other hand, Gerald, he, I mean, I don't know how much he likes it, but he said he likes it. So, uh, It'll be interested to hear two much more extreme uh, points of view than ours clash <laughs> when I finally listen to that episode. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Maybe we're we're just. Uh, I was gonna say we're older and and just more mellow, but that's not true. I think Gerald is older than me. I don't know. Anyway, all sorts of uh, opinions about season of the witch. Yeah, there's one thing that this movie does not bring, and it is boring discussion. 
It's <laughs> I don't think I've ever met a single person that said, eh. Like, I understand that's kind of your stance is it's not good, but I don't hate it. I've never heard someone just be like, it's okay. I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which movie was that? Was that the one with the guy with the hockey mask? I don't remember. <laughs> oh, the one with the kid and his head and <laughs> he, the reptiles. It turned into snakes and crickets that killed his parents. God damn. So that was Season of the Witch. That was our bonus episode for the month of September with Haddonfield Nights. Moving along to the month of October, uh, we will be going to the, the second half of our six-part series. Uh, we're going to be kicking off with the... Uh, man, depending on who... This is going to be another one that we're going to have to get to of the, the community that's so defensive about it, and that being uh, Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Wait, okay, so are you telling me that there are people out there, I haven't seen it, but based on everything I've absorbed through our friendship and just the internet and everything, I would think, even more so than Season of the Witch, obviously, but Halloween 6 is more reviled. Like That one, isn't that one the one that everybody can agree on? <laughs> that That's not good? So... That's where it'll get interesting because the theatrical release is widely agreed upon as being like the worst or one of the worst. But there are a lot of people that swear that the producer's cut is a good movie. I'm here. I'm here to tell you neither of them are good, but they both have Paul Rudd. So we'll be all right. Which one are we watching? We're going to be watching the producer's cut because uh, much like the the inverse of, uh, or similarly, I should say, not the inverse, but similarly to Rob Zombie. Remember how we talked about the difficulty of finding the theatrical version anymore? Mm -hmm. That's uh, very similar to uh, the Curse of Michael Myers. For a decade plus, it was extremely hard to get a copy of the producer's cut, and now it's like the only one that's accessible. So uh, we will be watching the producer's cut, but I did have queued up the YouTube series Dead Meat that I had referenced before, they do have a cut comparison. So I'll send that okay. to you so you can watch and see what was like taken out of the theatrical version because it makes no fucking sense because it was basically, <laughs> they were just like, studios like, I don't care. Plot doesn't matter. We have to have him stabbing a guy and his head exploding. You know, we got to have him do this and, you know, we got to get Howard Stern in the movie. Uh, Howard Stern <laughs> is not in the movie, but they tried. <laughs> so don't get my hopes up. That's part one, or part uh, four, I should say, but part one of October. We're starting with Curse of Michael Myers, moving on to uh, the 2018 sequel that effectively retcons all this shit that we've been talking about. And then uh, the bonus episode for the month of October will be Halloween H2O. Uh, so are we are we swapping those? I don't remember if we're... Didn't we talk about closing with 2018? Or yeah, we close with H2O? We'll close with 2018. We'll just put the bonus episode in the middle of the month as opposed to the end. Okay, cool. Yeah. Because that's how I have it on the website. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so that's all coming up. That does it for Season of the Witch. So as always, we want to give a shout out to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. Opening uh, being Last Stand, closing being Summer of 99. Uh, be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our logo, our seasonal logo, and our regular logo, both designed and executed by Hans Ruth Gieser, our fellow podcaster. He has three podcasts, Nación Combi, Marginal, and Living in Peru. You can find them in all podcatchers. Living in Peru is an iBox, the other two all podcatchers. Uh, they're about 
Peruvian current affairs, about the economy, and then about what do you think uh, living in Peru as an immigrant? Uh, he has a webpage called uh, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. And uh, you can also contact him on Twitter at mildemonios and through email at mildemonios at hotmail.com. Just talk to him. Check out his novels. He is a writer. He writes about zombies. Lately, he has published an anthology much in the vein of uh, Halloween 3 season of The Witch. <laughs> Imagine a book comprised of 20 or so stories like Halloween 3 season of The Witch, written by Peruvian authors, all about zombies. Called it's The book is called Zomus Zombies, with a Z. And uh, yeah, I, that's his latest project. Check it out. We're putting all the links to his work on our show notes. Uh, and of course, as has become customary, I don't even need to say that anymore. I've been saying that for like the last six episodes, as is now customary, <laughs> as is tradition. Uh, Zoe Perez, thank you for helping us and lending us your talents uh, with our social media pages, Instagram, Facebook specifically. Always enjoy seeing a new post of ours on Instagram, getting the word out, helping it. Very good at hashtagging too. Much better than Julio and myself. Much appreciated. That's what she gets for being uh, young and hip. We no longer yeah. qualify as either of those things. I mean, uh, I'm I'm older than her. You are much older than her. So it's... Uh, it's just three generations across <laughs> the board making the contrarians work. It's a well-oiled machine. It's the American dream. All right. Julio, we've been busy, not only with our summer of Winona and uh, obviously Haddonfield Nights, but uh, our friends and family in the podcasting community recently have also been so kind as to include us in some uh, recent episodes of theirs. The potential for us to embarrass ourselves was there uh, when we uh, had a guest spot on uh, Ghost of Stratosphere, which if you follow us on Twitter, you've already seen us uh, promote this, and we also promoted it on Facebook. Uh, we were there with the ghosts for a little bit of a trivia contest, comic book trivia, and we also talked about Ex Machina, pretty awesome Brian Vaughn book. I was about to say, uh, the graphic novel, not the Oscar Isaac joint. That's true. That's true. Although, as we discovered... As we discussed in that episode, it might become an Oscar Future Isaac joint. Future Oscar yeah. Isaac joint, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, look us up on that uh, on that show. If you're not listening to Ghost of Stratosphere, do so, especially if you like comics. Even if you don't like comics, they're pretty funny. They always have games that they play along with the reviews. And like I said, we were there for an episode where we played games and we talked about comics. So check that out. It was a fun episode. Uh, and then... A long time coming. Yes. Alex and I joined uh, our friends from, uh, what do you say, Alex? Across the pond? That's what you like to say? Yes. Our, our friends from Film Busters, Ben, Paul, and Adam. They invited us to talk about Holy Motors, a French mindfuck of a movie that a hell I of love. a discussion. Alex had never seen it before. Yes. We talked about it. It's, it's a pretty surreal movie. It's the kind of movie that we would have a lot of trouble covering on our own show, but it was perfect for their show. Yeah. It was great. It was a, a long discussion, but of course there was five of us and it's a movie that lends itself to being dissected and analyzed and it was a lot of fun. So so there's that too. Check out Filmbusters uh and their Holy Motors episode featuring the contrarians. It was it was great. It was very French. Uh it was fun. 
So that's that's twice the contrarian's dose uh, in addition to the regular contrarian. So you get every <laughs> three times a month. <laughs> yeah, we're we're out there. We're we're everywhere now. You can't you can't escape it. It's. Uh... I mean, we've been uh, podcasting a lot uh, for ourselves and also with some friends of ours. Uh, obviously, we appreciate the platform to go on and do those. This is typically where we move to our plugs. I mean, I've been watching uh, movies for this podcast pretty much predominantly recently. Last episode, I talked about Dancer in the Dark and how much I love that. I have really not too much else to plug. Uh, I did uh, bite the uh, bite the bullet, pull the trigger, whatever euphemism you want to use on the uh, Tony Hawk 1 and 2 remastered set for PlayStation 4 and so fun. It's uh were were those games big for you when you were younger? You know, I so I was never a skater, so that alone would probably mean that I I was not into it or I wouldn't have been aware. I do remember back in the NES days, speaking of me being old, uh, back in the NES days, you know, there was this game called Skate or Die. Mm-hmm. And there was a sequel, Skater or Die Two, and they even made Skater Die Three: Season of the Witch, which <laughs> was when the when the franchise. Ended. It was a skiing game. <laughs> yes, uh, but no, I remember playing Skater or Die one or two a couple times on the Nintendo. I'm figuring, you know what? I like this about as much as I like skateboarding in real life, which is not much. But I've heard that that Tony Hawk game is pretty awesome. Yeah, so it's, I'm it's, sure you're having a blast. It's the first one remastered. Yeah. You moved to America in 01, 02? 02. Okay. So Tony Hawk 1 came out in 1999. Tony Hawk 2 came out in 2000. And those were like seminal pieces of entertainment for my people in my age range, especially dudes. <laughs> my people? I, I specifically remember being sick uh, when the first time I played the first Tony Hawk, I had a sick day from school. My mom went and rented it from the video connection for me. And I remember specifically like playing the downhill jam level and just being blown away. The soundtrack was a really big part of it too. It was like really like cutting edge music for the time. Um, So essentially they've made for the past 20 years, just new Tony Hawk games. And it got to the point where everyone's just like quit. All we want is the original two games. (laughs) Just remaster them. So it's that remastered. They have the same soundtracks. It's the same missions and everything. It's a it's a it's a big nostalgia trip. It's it's essentially like when your favorite movie from childhood gets released on Blu-ray type thing. Like they were, like when Mask of the Phantasm got released on Blu-ray. Uh-huh. It's something very similar to that. But it's it's been so much fun to play. And me and my sister spent so much time playing those when we were younger and doing that again now. And I'm still better than her at it. And so like watching her get like insanely frustrated with it is very entertaining for me. Uh, I watched this movie called Page Eight. That's the only new thing I've watched. You know, we—I I think we mentioned that in the last episode. I've been just still getting used to a new job, so my my free time is mostly devoted to uh, sleeping. There you but go. But this is part of my my new Winona writer project, which was born out of the summer of Winona. Uh, I don't know if I actually told you about it or if I brought it up on the show, but it's it's called a hundred percent in Winona, which means. <sighs> That I'll I'll go to Letterbox and I click on Winona Ryder's filmography and it gives me the percentage of her movies that I've watched, and right oh, now wow. I'm at sixty two percent I think yeah I know so the goal is a hundred percent which not gonna lie might be unattainable because some of the shit they list on Letterbox is stuff like music videos 
or behind the scenes stuff. But there's still plenty of Winona movies to go through. I still have like at least, I want to say 15. And some of them are minor, like uh, Zoolander. I've never watched it, but apparently she's in it. Briefly, I'm assuming it's just like a cameo or something. You've never seen the original Zoolander? I haven't. I haven't seen the second one either. I haven't uh, seen the second one. Eddie told me not to, but <laughs> the original is great. I've meant to for a long time, but uh, you know, now I have even more pressing reason. Anyway, one of the movies that that's because I'm hitting the ones that are streaming right now, the ones that are mm-hmm. free, and so one of them is called uh, Turks and Caicos, which is the second movie in a trilogy starring Bill Nye. Which, how do you feel about Bill Nye? When I say Bill Nye, do you think uh, suave international super spy? Because that's what he is in this in this trilogy. He's an MI5 operative who's, uh, you know, he is Bill Nye in the sense that he's kind of, he has a dry humor and the dry delivery. Uh, but he's also getting laid a lot, which is very appropriate for our episode on Season of the Witch. He's kind yeah. of like Tom Atkins if he was a British spy. Uh, everywhere he goes, you kind of get the feeling that him and this woman have had sex and they both enjoyed it and they're both game to do it again. And so I watched the first movie in the trilogy, which doesn't have Winona writer in it. In this one, the love interest is Rachel Weiss. So Bill Nye, Rachel Weiss. Next movie, Bill Nye, Winona Ryder. I'm not sure which one, uh, who, who he's supposed to be uh, romancing in the third installment, but uh, I'm sure it'll be somebody that's, you know, Half his age. But anyway, page eight is the name of this uh, first movie in the trilogy. It's really good. It's, uh, did you ever watch uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy the movie with Gary Oldman? I did not. Isn't that what he won the Academy Award for? Mm-mm. He won for Churchill or Churchill. Well, for playing Churchill. Uh, but no, I think he might have been nominated. It, it was, you know, it's, I think there's something to British spy thrillers. Uh, they're not at all like American spy thrillers. There's yeah. a lot less action. Uh, I don't think anybody pulls a gun in this movie at all. It's all just dialogue. They're they're talking to each other. They're being quippy. They're being condescending. Uh, they're being a lot of. Uh, they're being pretty funny. And really, it's just ninety minutes. Each installment is ninety minutes, so that's great. Of uh, Bill Nye just talking to people, being snarky and trying to figure out a mystery. Um, hell of a cast in addition to Rachel Weisz uh, Voldemort shows up as uh, the Prime Minister Ray Fiennes shows up as uh, the English patient himself shows up as the Prime Minister Coriolanus himself Coriolanus himself yes Michael Gambone is uh, Bill Nye's boss Uh, Judy Davis is kind of like his superior Uh, it's just such good acting and uh, like I said there was just that extra pleasure of finding out that Bill Nye could actually play on this register. Because to me, when I think Bill Nye, I think Love Actually, I, I think, uh, you know, fucking Underworld. Uh, movies where he's just very over the top. And you're, you can't, you're really, you're not supposed to take him seriously. He's great, but you're not supposed to take him seriously. This is a drama and uh, you buy it. He's great. With Rachel Weiss and then Winona Ryder, that's like... That's Julio Heaven right there. I'm trying to think of who the trifecta would be. Those, I know yeah, those are like Kate Winslet. They Kate just, Winslet. They, there you go. They have to close with Kate Winslet, and she's British, so it's it's perfect. The yeah, that's the Julio trifecta right there, listeners. All right, so there you go. Play some Tony Hawk. Watch some British spy action <laughs> drama comedy. Uh, 
so that wraps it up for Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. That wraps it up for the month of September in Haddonfield Nights. And that wraps it up for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. I know outside town. I think you really love it. At night when no one is around, we'll drive into the sunset. Promise me you won't forget. That summer of 1999.